Welcome to Mechanations. I'm still stuck in the break, but I have a feeling they'll let me out any minute, and you know what? We probably won't bring it up again. Joining me this week are the biggest fans of Job Job Around, Stephen Hero, and PMC Trilogy. Forgive me, I messed up Job John's name. There are the real hero <laughs> of Mobile Suit Gundam, Job John. He's uh, everywhere. Uh, He's everywhere you need him to be. Yeah. He's doing a lot. Every true Universal Century fan has a picture of Job Job, <laughs> Job John in their house. Yeah, See? Job Job. Good Job Job. Uh, yes, Job John. Uh, it's that picture of Wolverine, and he's looking at a picture, and it's of Job John. I just think about the uh, picture of uh, someone swapped out Obi Wan Kenobi from Episode Two to replace their parents' picture of Jesus on the wall. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking of I right hope, now. Job job with a mullet. I can't imagine that's actually real. I'm sure that's internet real, where where someone thought that was a funny story and then put it online, you know, which is how right. most internet stories are. Which is like are. most of the, that, that subreddit about dating or whatever. Right. The, like, or, Am yeah. I the asshole one? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Where it's like, okay, no. I don't, this, that, this, this is the fifth weird Waffle House story we've gotten, and we don't believe you. I mean, here's the thing, <laughs> and I don't want to, listen. Everyone, we should have fun on this big dumb internet because it sucks. And mm-hmm. if we don't, if we don't have fun on it, then there's no point of it at all. But at the same time, if you read a story online and it has a beginning, middle, and end, it's made up. Like that's the thing about uh, uh, reality and stories. This is the thing, especially about stories, is that stories are work and they have a structure. And there is a, a kind of effort that's put into it, and a good one will have like a setup and payoff. Not that specifically, but in general, if you're reading something online and it works that way, someone made it up mm-hmm. <laughs> or have, in any case, have taken something that may have occurred and have added an amount of fictionalizing that essentially makes it made up at that point. Everyone <laughs> anyway. imposes narratives, you know, that's a, a frequent thing that we do uh, in our lives. Having said that, though, it's fucked up for me to put that out there when last week we did tell a very real story that happened to us. It's that- true. That does sound made up. That one was real, uh, though. That really did happen to us, and it had. We got you. That one's well. That one's weird because that does have a beginning, <laughs> middle, and end. I would say, <laughs> but it is is a clean narrative. So you know what? Sometimes it does happen. There's no way enough to fill a subreddit, though. Like in that particular, I don't know why this is the start for us this week. But <laughs> it's just very chaotic energy. I feel like, or it's, it's spooky times are here. That's fine. Yeah, that's right. This is the first official spooky recording of Mechanations. It's so haunted, you can tell. I don't think any of us have any um, haunted Twitter names, though. Uh, I, I'm every, cons- I think about it every year, and I just don't know. Like, I, I always want to do like like PMC sh- Shriekaji or something like that, and mm-hmm. I just I'm like, eh, I'm not like, eh. Well, so Steven Spooktacular. Well, hero. this is where it gets hard because we're already on here on uh, Nom Duplums or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we're already on handles, so like. I mean, mine, I, I was thinking Ignis Midnight for the month. That one's not bad, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like. Uh, but the the whole thing is we're already using make up names, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. We're already doing that. So we're already spooked up over here. We could just do what Kato over at Repoint does, where he just kind of, like, reverses the, the colors on his avatar and just does, like, haunted <laughs> Kato or whatever. We could just do that. Uh, I don't know if we could pull off that same sort of... Uh, because uh, we're too corny for that. Yeah. We're, the, the trilogy of us are there's, very corny. There's a level of ham going on. Right. But, uh, I mean, it could work. You could do, you know, get uh, get that young Frankenstein we'll figure energy. It out. We'll figure it out. Maybe it'll be the project mm-hmm. for, for the month, you know. At some point, we'll have a... At, on on uh, uh, October 29th, <laughs> we have come up with a, a true uh, haunted Twitter handle. In any case, speaking of haunted things, 
PNC. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you explain to us? Last last time we talked about JRPGs, you you didn't have the best of times with with Wild Arms Three. That turned out to be kind of a negative experience, and now you're on to something new. You're playing uh, something more mecha-related. Why don't, why don't you tell us about the thing that you're doing? Yeah, so I have started a playthrough of Vanguard Bandits. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that, that is a firmly uh, mid-to-late PS1 strategy RPG, very much in the vein of like a Front Mission 3, because it is a you know narrative-driven, linear strategy RPG. It has branching paths. I think there is like three different major branches that you can separate onto in, in the game's narrative and the way it works you know is you're you're doing these fantasy mecha it's all fantasy mech so it's more like your your escaflone or that kind of style rather than you know any other particular style of mecha and it you control it on the 2d map every time you initiate an attack it zooms down into the 3d animation of the you know the two fantasy mechs hitting each other usually with swords or spears occasionally magic and uh it's that game is interesting, uh, not only because it is, of course, you know, from that that sort of like weird heyday of like strategy RPG mecha life, but it is also one of the working designs localizations. Uh, working designs, of course, the publisher that brought over a bunch of games. I feel like Lunar was kind of the height of what they did, uh, but they did other things as well. They are well known for adding farts mm-hmm. to their translation. Yeah. As they, uh, the... And one Bill Clinton reference in the Sega CD <laughs> That's version right. of Lunar. That's too. right. Isn't the you have to say Lunar like the making the, of the disc. game yeah. over? They the game over. They say Lunar. The game over text for Lunar is like a. Um, isn't it like a song reference or something? Like uh, I forget what it was. It's been a while. Yeah, it's, and obviously I never die in Lunar because I'm perfect. But um, <laughs> it's something like that. That you know, it's like the like a dead man's crew yeah, or something that like that. Tombstone. Yeah, I will. I will absolutely do that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, I couldn't. I, I I don't want to divert us. But I I remember being so fucking mad at all the MP items you found yeah. when you were playing. I was so mad because I was like, oh, oh, you found a lot. He just had zero problem. There was just at no point. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Like the the anyway, it's the, fine. The silver moons or the blue mm-hmm. crest. Yeah, yeah, no, I, those I, are I they just flowed like wine, dog. Oh, shut, shut the shut I, the fuck I up. Opened up my vineyard <laughs> of my MP restoration items. Introducing our new guest, Joe John. <laughs> So, all right. I'm sorry, PMC. The localization definitely. I I think it's interesting because even uh, it's one of those things. Working designs. They already mentioned my co-host already mentioned the making of Lunar CD. Working designs was often upfront about their efforts to publish and localize in a way that you don't really don't find. I feel like in other publishers of the era, or maybe even sometimes now. And the instruction manual for Vanguard Bandits like mentions. The like search to pick a title for this game because I'm pretty sure Vanguard Pandits as a title is not in any way, shape, or form, you know, the same title. Epica Stella. Yeah, it's something like Stella. Yeah, exactly. The the company who made it's it, human uh, entertainment. Human, yeah, they they very artistic uh, mm. game company. They made the Clock Tower games, a bunch of really cool games that took advantage of like Clock Tower. timing yeah. mechanics. There's a game like with, with a sinking, sinking ship. ship. Yep, yep. Uh, I've seen. I've yeah. seen. I, we mentioned him all the time. McCall 45, I watched play that game, and it's a fascinating game, the structure of it. Suda got his start there. So that's where uh, a lot of the talent has gone in that direction. So it's definitely, it is, it's a real video game, but also because uh, you know, it has that working designs uh, approach to it, you definitely have a lot. Of, so Vanguard Band, as I mentioned the title, the ultimate fantasy mech that the player character is fated to pilot by his royal blood 
is in Vanguard Bandits called the Ultra Gunner. Uh, it does not have a gun, but it is very cool looking. It's right on the front of the cover art. You see it on the cover art. I actually just recently found it in a uh, in a Sun Temple, and I, it was one of the most recent fights I did, and it was very cool. It was it looks like a little like like Mech Pope, and it does lightning damage. It's very cool. Uh, you, you had me, then you lost me, and then you got me right back. The Sun Temple. It's yeah, like, oh, okay, no, well, he, he, he like he he has like a big sword, like a big sword, and it strikes lightning bolts at his enemies. It's very cool. Uh, yeah. Interesting. So I I posted that on a Mecha Day like at the very beginning. I mean, this was the first week of Mecha mm-hmm. Day. I posted it. I think I posted it under another name. Real quick sidebar: people have no idea how difficult it is to fact check credentials on obscure Mecha. Like when I'm corrected, people think it's the most obvious shit <laughs> in the world. I am sometimes literally deep diving into the stacks of Google, trying to find cross check everything, find the mechanical designer. And I've been corrected by mechanical designers who have been uncredited. The Armored Core, the, what's the Phantasma one? The second oh, one? Project Phantasma? Yeah, the, the mech designer is actually uncredited in the actual credits of the game, and he reached out. Very nice oh. gentleman, but he reached out and said, oh, actually, I did this. So that was like the public reveal. Through, Interesting. I, kind of I assume uh, Shoji was credited for it, right? Probably? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, well, that's, that's fascinating. BS. Yeah, I mean, also BS, for sure. Um, would, do you remember what mecha it was? I'm just curious. Do you, was, it, was, it, was it the Phantasma itself? or No, uh, it was, no, it was uh, something a little more obscure. Okay. Uh, but anyway, I mean, so... My experience with it is that it is very streamlined. It is uh, instead of having like a lot of individual components, like for example, like from Mission or Armored Core, you'd be replacing like legs and arms and all that. Uh, everyone's got a single health bar. Uh, you have a fatigue system where you accrue fatigue. If you accrue too much fatigue, you have to take a turn off. Uh, you upgrade your weapon, your magical gem that powers the mech, and an accessory, and that's that's really it. You get the right stats to upgrade the um to get new abilities and that's mm. that's kind of the one thing i don't i don't like i i would if you're going to go for a streamlined experience i would rather just you know tie abilities to levels uh the sort of like you don't know what stats you need to unlock <laughs> the new abilities i'm a little down on that but at this point in my life i just look it up so it's easy for me now uh yeah. to do it but uh it's just certainly not my preference but regardless with that that means that when I am playing the game with a guide, I have a clear roadmap of where I'm commanding and upgrading my troops. So nice method of progression, uh, pretty straightforward battles. I wouldn't say it's uh, terribly varied scenarios. It is not Vandal Hearts. Vandal Hearts, I still think, is the king of interesting variety in, in terms of objectives in a strategy RPG. But it's very pleasant. I, I am just, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about prepping. I don't have to worry about game overing. It is not a permadeath strategy RPG. If someone goes down, they're fine. They'll be back next fight. Don't worry about it. Um, there is no healing, which is kind of weird. But um, mm. but again... There are branching paths, yes. right, in the yep. narrative. Like, there are multiple endings. I played through it ages mm-hmm. ago. I remember I had that sick hardcover strategy mm-hmm. guide. Um, but I can't remember much about it other than it was like a run-of-the-mill, like, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but like Escaflone-inspired game. Very, like, B-tier Escaflone. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I, I think um, I'm obviously I'm still working through it, but in terms of you know royal bloodlines and competing kingdoms and uh, you know various betrayals, it's uh, it is exactly what you expect it to be. Which in this case is pretty cool because I happen to like mechs and strategy RPGs and working designs translations. 
I will say there is one side character who um, is entirely reduced to a one-dimensional fat-shaming joke, which sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been trying to turn that character into a, a monster, and unfortunately, I don't think the uh, the number is working in my favor because he doesn't have a special ability to work towards, which is also annoying. Um, but you know, not everyone cool. can be Donald. Yeah, I, I right. Yeah, they not only do they make him a, a fat shaming joke, they also uh, don't really give him uh, an end game in terms of being effective, uh, which which is a bummer. Um, but yeah, cool. Yeah, uh, but the good news is again, of course, the main character uh, is powerful, becomes more powerful, and there are. It's also a game that has a lot of opportunities to recruit people through a special conditions. So very much, you're hearing all this, and you're like, "Wow, that sounds like a PS1 strategy RPG." Like, yes, it is. Um, it sure is. <laughs> yep, sure is. So, and and I I feel like at this point I probably won't bring it up again on Intradis because I truly do not expect that to change i think it's going to keep on being what it is uh which is to say if you like strategy rpgs and you like mechs i think even with the warts of a 90s working design uh, localization it will be worth your time it's still somewhat pretty accessible to get to because if you if you have a vita or a ps3 Mm. you can get it on the psn still uh working designs work not working designs itself but i don't know that one of the companies they migrated to probably i think yeah, or Monkey Paul was one of them mm. as a friend of Vix. Gaij- yeah, a little separate from Gaijin Works, I think, because okay. they were doing their own thing. But they released that and Arc the Lads 1 through 3. The Lunar Games were stuck in Wright's Hell because Game Arts purchased all the localized names from Working Designs before they folded. That's why Xseed was able to use them for their translation right. of the PSP Lunar Games. Right, right. Yeah, there's all sorts of goofiness there because there's like a iOS version of Silver Star Story that exists, and it's like not the Working Designs script. I don't think. Yeah, and like, there's a version of Vi, a Sega CD game they localized that came out on iOS years and years ago. But also, I believe it doesn't use the Working Designs script. Yeah, bizarre, 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 bizarre. Not into that. Not into that. Uh, yeah, I mean, Vanguard Bandits is something I've always... That's what it's called, right? Yes, you got it. Yeah, it's, it's something I've always been, been uh, like, sort of, like, tacitly curious about, but not really... Because, obviously, when, when Steven had it in his youth, uh, it's something I watched him play a little tiny bit of. But, like, you know, the, the, the strategy RPGs... Hmm, how do I put this? If your first interaction with strategy RPGs is Final Fantasy Tactics... That's rough. And you don't really like Final Fantasy Tactics... Uh, it can take you a while to get back into. I don't know if there's anywhere RPGs. you can go. That's what I'm saying. Well, no, I disagree though, because really, other tactics games, especially like basically anything other than Final Fantasy Tactics, are is are not really that nuts. Yeah, like tactics Fall- for. Go ahead. Sorry, I I have a thought about I, well, this, but go ahead. I, I, I mean, I'm I you know I'm curious how other people feel because I know that there's like a like a general feeling that Final Fantasy Tactics. I'm sorry that we've moved on to a different game now. It's <laughs> not the mech game you brought up. Um, but you know, Final Fantasy Tactics people really regard as like the the cult classic one, like the the mm, yes, this is the real answer to the the which is your favorite Final Fantasy. Like ah, uh, the real ones will say Final Fantasy, and like. I don't know, man. I, <laughs> I've never really. I feel like that one is uh, uh, a nightmare to play. Like truly and honestly, I know people love it. I know people have cracked it open, and like the act of cracking it open is really fun for them. And I'm not hating because I play Pokemon, and that's the same shit. It's just that I I definitely remember the Final Fantasy Tactics being the first time I interacted with a strategy RPG, and just feeling like, well, oh, 
I'm too stupid for this genre <laughs> because tactics is not kind. But PMC, what what, what did you well, have to say? About was, that's that? exactly that's a, a summary of what I was about to say, which is that in terms of being a gentle introduction to the gameplay, problem with Final Fantasy Tactics is, is, is it's a it's a Matsuno fever dream. It, the the it, game yes, the, the mechanics spiral out of control. I mean, you know, if you want to, you can, you know, grind in like the first chapter or whatever to unlock calculator and just, you know, do whatever you want forever and ever. Amen. But like that is that's not really, I think, the kind of experience sane people should want. I don't know. No. Um, so like, yeah, that's why oftentimes when 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 it comes up. I'm I'm a fan of Vandal Hearts is is a challenge. Honestly, the modern Fire Emblem games are all fine too. Like Awakening yeah. is is a pretty okay time uh because you can actually progress through and just and progress incrementally in a way that you would expect from a, a JRPG, a, you know, a conventional turn-based JRPG. And I think that's a much more pleasant experience. I mean I, I like the tactics narrative enough. The music's very good. The art's very good, blah, blah, blah. But it is a very systems-driven game, but necessarily a game that I think is balanced super well. And for yeah. that reason, like I understand why people hold it in high regard, but it is definitely not... I don't think it should be anyone's first strategy RPG, unless they're the sort of people who, who like just grinding and and trying out and messing with systems because the systems can be rewarding it's it just it's not it's not sit down and play through this story it is not that it, my relationship with tactics is is especially cursed because the the first time i really played through through it was the psp port war mm. of the lions and as you know the psp port war of the lions had its own sort of issue mm-hmm. uh which is the uh the long loading times between some of the moves that would happen and and some other things that would yeah. go on but war of the lions had an incredible localization though it's true really really one of the top notch ones i would say like a uh uh some a weirdly good one in the the ranks of jade cocoon <laughs> you know <laughs> Um, uh, speaking of, uh, a weird, uh, localization. Nope. That's not a good transition. Uh, uh <laughs> speaking of, well. uh, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, um, the, uh, uh, Steven, you've, you've been, of course, you're always working on, on, uh, writing, uh, other projects, releasing other, uh, uh, works on the things that we've talked about. And you've, you've written something recently. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so I had a piece quietly published over the weekend in the recent uh, Rhythm Generation zine. A really wonderful group of people about two years ago in 2019, a group of really committed Gundam Wing fans got together and released a fanzine called Rhythm Generation um, to the internet, full of artwork and fan fiction primarily. And I have to say, number one, I've been part of the Gundam Wing fan community for a little bit now. Um, I interviewed the wonderful Bobo's the Bomb about a year and a half ago, actually about a year ago. And I joined, and I was invited to join their Discord, and I did. And their Discord is super welcoming. Um, just a really a group of open-minded, committed fans, super creative. I really enjoy um, viewing their stuff, reading their stuff. It's been a real pleasure. And when the call for artwork and written work for the 2021 zine went out, I jumped at the chance. Now, unlike other zines I participated in, there was one um, guiding rule, and that is... They wanted you to keep to a theme, and the theme for the 2021 issue was mythology, um, world mythology. So try to relate whatever you're writing or drawing to world mythology. 
So I'm not a fanfic writer. I don't have the chops for that. But I can write a pretty mean article if, if, if the, the inspiration is, uh, you know, I'm sparked with the inspiration. And I was thinking about the idea, like how can I write a non-fictional piece about mythology? Like how can I tie like, myth, world mythology into it? And I thought about the origin of the production of Gundam Wing. I was thinking about the story of Sisyphus, you know, endlessly pushing up that boulder uphill. And we talked about this on the, our history episode, just how like, turbulent and traumatic the production of Gundam Wing was, which we talked about in our discussion of the show, but the director left midway through. I left out some holes in the, in the original history episode that I filled in. The head writer left for a time because he was so burnt out, and they later returned. Uh, other staff issues as well. Shinji Chakamatsu, who like picked up the directorial reins, um, had a real tough time with wrapping up Gundam Wing, and then he worked on Gundam X, and basically was done with Gundam after that forever. And even like the, the if you look back to the origins of Gundam Wing, Gundam Wing wouldn't exist if Tomino was like, "Fuck it, I do not want to make Gundam anymore." I know there was the stopgap of G Gundam, but really the origin of Gundam Wing was when Tomino went to his bosses and say. No. And he left Sunrise for a time. I mean, he, he's, he's always been freelance. He's always very proud to say he's freelance. But he basically said, when my con- contract with Victory Gundam is finished, I am finished with you. Of course, he re- returned with Turn A Gundam later. Uh, yeah. But I explore all that. And it was a, it was a really fun ride. Um, I will say, definitely check out their Twitter profile. It's great. They, they promote a lot of great artists and writers. And definitely, definitely check it out. You may see the piece in a more public venue soon. I could talk about it more in the future then. Cool, cool, cool. I, I've loved all the stuff you've written about the, the mech shows that we've covered, and I think basically all the stuff you've written is about stuff we've covered, to, to some people's chagrin, <laughs> sometimes. My, my goal is to write one piece, uh, one critical piece. So the piece I wrote for this was a history piece. I, I, I will say, to pull back the current a bit, over the summer I did read um, Glory to the Losers, or right. Glory, mm. Glory right. of the Losers, right. and I have an essay percolating. Who, hopefully I get to it this month. Um, talking about that. But my goal is to write one critical piece about everything we watched. Some things it's going to prove more difficult. I do not have a thesis statement for Genlock. There are a few things I'm like, I was about like, to fuck. ask you about Genlock, so thank you for anticipating my my dare. The only thing I came up with, like, brainstorming, is I could write, like, a puff piece, like, 10 things Genlock season 2 should keep in mind. Or <laughs> that would be great. I would love for you to write, like, a BuzzFeed sort of, like, uh, <laughs> 10 things you didn't know about Genlock, and it's just, like, the themes. It's just, like, the main things that the text is about. <laughs> It's like, th- did you have you ever heard of the ship of Theseus? You know that. that <laughs> did you know the ship of Theseus is a real idea? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you know David Tennant's a real actor? No, I don't know. <laughs> it's just that's the level of stuff that we're talking about. No, no, no. That's cool. I'm excited. I hope there's a chance I have. I mean, I guess I could just ask you. Like you could just send yeah, it I can send it over. <laughs> yeah, you could just send it to me. But you know, uh, that's the sort of thing that that uh, I love to see. I love to see people recognize your work, and I hope to see more of it in the future. I, d- I will say I do have the Gundam Wing. I'm not the Gundam Wing. The Mobile Suit Gundam thesis, like dead to rights. I have it in my mind what I'll be writing about. I just want to finish the show first. Yeah, I mean, here, I mean, I guess I won't say anything this week. I can't make a um, I can't make a blood vow like I did last week because this this week it starts off like full blast right mm-hmm. in my face where I have to talk about it right <laughs> it really away. Does. So I can't really. Sorry, everyone. I'm really sorry. I didn't write the show. I'm just watching it. So no, I, I feel bad too because when I was writing the notes, I feel like I've regurgitated like every old talking point, which also happens to be a criticism <sighs> of the show, like point by point, well, especially for the first episode. Listen, listen, we're gonna get into it for sure. Before we get into it for real, for real, I, I will say that 
on the subject of what I'm going into for intro discs, I'm, I'm not going to talk about it for real, but uh, now that uh, my partner and I have finished uh, Tales of Arise, we have transitioned into the next sort of thing, uh, that, and that is Xenogears. We've just started Xenogears, and uh, uh, our three of Xenogears. What, what that's going to mean for the podcast is maybe less of intro disc conversations and mo- way more likely that I'm just going to drop in this is how this thing is like Xenogears rather than, you know, <laughs> talk about it in a long form sort of way. Because as people who are familiar with Xenogears knows, you know, that's kind of a commitment. I'm I'm commonly, I'm going to be in the world of Xenogears for a little while. <laughs> so uh, that's the sort of thing you can look forward to if you're interested. And you know what? Uh, all three of us uh, are, are f- very familiar with that game as compared to some of the others. So if we get to the end of it and I feel like there is something to say then who knows? Well, maybe we'll figure something out. Um, but now we've got to talk about Mobile Suit Gundam. Uh, uh, here's here's something I want to I want to get out of the way real quick, just because I've been thinking about it. So so something we don't necessarily talk about all the time is is our our kind of uh, uh, you know to to kind of open open up the curtains and look at our our procedure. I'm going to talk talk about my. My thought process, just a teeny, teeny, weensy bit, just so we could clarify a couple of things about maybe where I'm coming from, just so it can be clear when I'm talking about, you know, something that's annoying me, why it would annoy Ignis in this case, who is speaking right now. So the one thing I will say is that uh, a lot of times I will be coming at a scene and it will bother me from the perspective of, I feel like I am, hmm, okay. So to break it down, I'll watch a scene. The scene will happen, and I'll have whatever reaction I have to it, which will be good or bad or whatever, right? And then the next thing that will happen is that, you know, once I have an entirety of the episode in mind, I'll be thinking about, well, how does this fit into the whole, right? And we talked about earlier when we were, how does this fit into the whole? Haha. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Stephen, <laughs> um, we spoke earlier about Reddit stories, and if and if a Reddit story has a beginning and middle and end, that that is a good indicator, you know, when we're talking about being critical of things online, you know, online literacy, you might call it. That's a good indicator that you're not dealing with 100% honesty, just because of the way real world things work out. And so, with that in mind, you know, once we have a whole, and to give an example of that, uh, in episode 22. There is a strange scene. We're not in it, in it yet. I'm just trying to give an example of what I'm talking about. There is a scene where Frau Bao gives the children a bath. And then in the episode, there are a series of catastrophes that occur. And part of the reason that they occur is because Mirai is in charge instead of Bright. And someone might go, oh, those are just two separate things. And someone else might go, those two things are related. Those two scenes have something to do with one another. And and that's I'm kind of in that latter camp. And so sometimes if I have a complaint and it and you feel like you're not getting where it's coming from, that's kind of how I'm approaching things. And I just wanted to get that out there just in case there are listeners who are like, these guys just hate this shit. They just hate it all the way down. And like that's really not where I'm at. Especially this week, I mostly liked both of these episodes even if I, you know, the thing that I want to be extremely clear about is that I, I feel like there is a tendency, especially for me, just because of the way that I vocalize my my critiques or how I see the show, that I will sometimes just be hyperbolic and I'll just be like, this sucks, fuck this, or something like that. And that's not really 100% uh, 
where I'm at. There, I'm just trying to communicate for the audience a little bit where the energy is when I'm watching at the time. Does any of that make sense to you guys? Do you feel like, am I equivocating for no reason, or do you feel like no. that was a useful thing to... I think that's that's really useful, because if I had to add a note to it, uh, or, or build upon it, what I would say is that we're trying to, like, I'm trying to get a textual understanding of what's happening, and then I want to move those pieces around and push them against each other and see what comes of it. Like that's, that to me is the really interesting exercise of doing this with y'all is that it's not just to say like, uh, referring maybe as previous weeks, why did, uh, Hayato and Kai leave white base? Because right. they were, uh, you know, they felt like they were being slighted by, you know, Bright's, uh, you know, catering to Amaro, so to speak. And I understand that that is, you know, if you asked me to write a legal brief defending the show, that is the answer I would give. That was what right. I would write down. Uh, right. But we were, I think, or at least I was, I'll say, uh, was very interested in understanding uh, why Hayato would be the one to do this, why why Kai would be the one to do this. And, and so right. really trying to take the characterization and the plot events and thematic material and, and push that together. And, you know, sometimes it, sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, the good news of this show is I feel like usually the action works. So even if I'm bumping on something, I can follow the flow of things. But but the point is to elaborate on what we're trying to, or at least what I'm trying to impose on it. That is the idea that we're trying right. to get characters and themes and just kind of rub them up against each other and see if there's any sparks, you know? The other thing, too, and I'm glad you, you brought this up and we're going to get to the coverage. I promise. I promise we're going to get there. <laughs> Um, is that the second step of that, the other step of recognizing just structure, is is then imposing our individual experiences on top of that, right? Like, and this is where having the three of us as a host is the... And a lot of this is going to be obvious to people, but I'm just trying to get this out there for people who are are concerned about, you know, where where these guys are coming from, what's their individual point of views. That's just... I'm just... Just explaining my process a little bit. And if that was boring, I'll include, you know, this is going to be the time code for the end of the, the, the intro disc anyway. So there you go. Intro disc end. How are you? So-so. You are in bad shape. You are in bad shape. You are in bad Haro? shape. Haro? Mm, it's all right. <laughs> Ryu? Haro sure is well made and honest. Haro is well. Ryu must rest and get well soon. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Haro. He even has a circuit to make him sound charming. Let us begin. Mobile suit Gundam. Hold on, I need to put my Gundam pants on. I really want to say that the the English narrator, when he when he reads the episode title, Sorrow and Hatred, really sounds like Stephen Hero's sick voice from last week. I, oh, yeah, I listened to it this morning too. Okay, I really felt like he was really conjuring the like, sorrow and hatred. <laughs> sorrow and I hatred. really missed the you know the the concerning like voice tenor. I really miss the Gundam. I don't miss the Gundam Ring narrator, but I do miss his voice. Something about his voice is like primo narrator. Oh, for sure, one hundred percent. He was one hundred percent like at least for you know the hateful, manipulative, uh, you know terrible foe that he was he he was good at the job um but yes i i totally forgot that the title of this episode is star and hatred because i did that thing i sometimes do with the episode titles where i just don't i make them up mm-hmm. uh so for episode 21 so let's begin the summary for episode 21 sorrow and hatred or as ignis labeled it 
Ryu fucking dies. <laughs> um, this episode was scripted by Yoshihisa. <laughs> it was scripted by Yoshihisa Araki. Uh, unit director was Susumu Gyoda, and the animation director was Kazuo Yamazaki. Uh, <laughs> Rumbara has fallen, but the duty he and his men and wife have taken up remains. Despite zero backup from Makove, uh, Haman gathers the men in a rousing speech that simultaneously respects each man's autonomy while also encouraging them to give their lives. Meanwhile, Ryu is fairly certain that Bright is messing all of this up, to the point that he just won't stay in bed. Going to Amuro just before Haman's attack breaks out, Ryu tells Amuro that he has faith in him. Ryu lets Amuro out of solitary to assist with fighting off Haman's attack, which is messy to begin with due to recovering from Ramba's previous assault. Haman throws the gallop filled with explosive on a crash course with the white base, forcing the Gundam to intercept it and making it vulnerable to attack. At the last possible moment, Ryu uses the remaining core fighter and crashes into Haman's fighter. Everyone blames themselves for the loss of Ryu, but Sela insists that they must collect themselves and try to move on. That is the only way this ends for them, is to defeat Zeon. Okay, alright. Uh, so I, um, I, did, I couldn't remember what this episode was called when I was... When I was working up this uh, this intro, I did find it because I, d- I had to pull up the uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, the the staff of course. Mm-hmm, but, staff credits. Uh, yeah, but this one was um I uh, okay just off the top I'm gonna say that this one I like this one I have a um a overarching critique on it and and maybe i don't know if i should i guess yeah i'll say it now because it it does regard the rest of the episode oh hey this one aired on my birthday how about that oh yeah 10 years before i was born how about that have some sorrow and hatred also reuse dies exactly happy birthday reuse fucking dead (laughs) episode 22 ignis's belated birthday yeah exactly uh but yeah anyway the the big thing I have the big issue I have in this episode is that uh, the end of the episode hinges on the rest of the characters having a relationship to Ryu, um, and in a in a hilarious way, the uh, the like the sort of like memory flashback we have of Ryu at his on his death is like all the stuff that happened in this episode, and and it kind of I listen. I understand what they're doing, right? They're not actually suggesting that the happy memories everyone has of Ryu are the previous events of this episode. What they're doing is showing us a sequence of events and, and why these characters blame themselves for yes, what happens right. to Ryu. Yep. But because of the strength of everyone's reactions, it has this implication about their re- relationship to this character that having watched 21 previous episodes, or I'm sorry, 20 ep- previous episodes of Mobile Suit Gundam... Uh, <laughs> like I'm, I'm looking in my personal file. I'm like footage not found. You know, like yeah, I, I feel similar. I mean, I was a little more critical of this episode because I think the action towards the end of the next episode slaps pretty hard. But I don't know. Like, I just don't have a connection with Ryu, and I feel like this episode for it to land kind of necessitates that I have a connection with. Ryu. So the the thing that's fucked up about it is that I'm very open to the idea of a connection to Ryu because oh, same. because like I think he is a character who I could love in a Miles O'Brien sort of way 
like and, and, which is almost the sort of vibe but like there's there's no been there there's been no work to set any of that up like it's i would if i was being incredibly generous i would say that it's very subtle if, if they've done it do you know what I, pmc do you have a thought here I think my my bird's eye view for this episode is I was trying to compare contrast it to our other uh, Lady Vengeance episode. Uh, uh, e- e- I don't. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to invoke that episode because the answer is well, if you compare the two episodes, I feel like this one gets closer to accomplishing its <laughs> such objectives. A low bar. Right. A low bar to be sure. <laughs> don't don't. Well, absolutely. Um, well, like, yes. PMC, uh, this is not your fault. I, mm. It's just you've 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 gotten <laughs> to one of the first sort of issues of of the week, which is that both both of these episodes I would consider rehashes of stuff that we've mm-hmm. done before. And and like, what I'll say about this, and maybe this is what you're about to say, yes. Like, and or maybe what you just said, which is that like, as a setup for Lady Vengeance on the Gundam, this is way better yeah this there's there's way more reason for for all of this to happen than um uh elsa frozen strikes back (laughs) and then you know at the end all of that but but it's not it's not it's better and but it's not good Mm. it's it's right right i mean you guys are already getting into some of the you know the the major issues I feel like you know we can we can do a whole revisit of our our thoughts about how the Xeon forces are portrayed. That will probably you know come up in in a second. Um, so like still still major issues, but like I feel like at least I with with if I were to give a a total thesis statement for Iselina's uh, Love Remains episode, it was like, man, sometimes weird stuff comes back to bite you. That was strange. Whereas, like, this is a m- closer to being a concise, like, cycle of violence uh, type of episode. Still problems, but, like, I can at least, I, I feel like we were definitely, of I think, of, of the thought that the text was just hard to follow in that episode. Here, I think we have followed the text. We have things to talk about, but it is a structurally more sound episode. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't. I think I think you're being very generous when when you say like the the text was the issue with Iselina and and the Elsa Frozen thing. I'm not saying this mm. to counter what you're saying necessarily. Mm. I'm I'm piggybacking. I, yeah. I'm, you know our issue with Elsa Frozen Strikes Back is that that's it's stupid. That's a dumb. It's, not, wasn't it's a dumb. Good, yeah, you know. Tamino gender bullshit thing that we're we're going to see again in the next episode. Right. This is a in the end in this one. This is that weird sort of thing that Gundam suggests that like a beautiful woman is just kind of allowed to do things, you know, and uh, whatever. I'm not sitting here, going to sit here and complain about, you know, um, uh, uh, the idea that someone would email us and be like, Ignis hates women (laughs) because he doesn't think beautiful women should do things. Did y'all know that her first name is Crowley? Yeah, it's yeah. Someone actually, uh, we we've we've had some fun interactions with with people on Twitter, and somebody on Twitter uh, mentioned her name as Crowley, and and I was like, oh, that's, yeah, yeah. that's strange. What? <laughs> and, and it, I like. I, I think that I because I, I found out because I did the thing that I do where I, I go I I commit the gravest of sins and I go to the Gundam fandom wiki, and it, like immediately it's like her name is Curly Haman. She's common law Mrs. husband and wife Crowley. with Ron Burrell, which is fine. And then the other thing was that apparently she features prominently in the Guren's Greed game for uh, Saturn. Weird. 
Yeah. Very strange. People do like that game. A lot of art with her in uh, in full uh, Zeon soldier uniforms in that game, apparently. So, you know, it it's 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 interesting. You know, I, I think the, the thing that I want to say is that um, at the very least, uh, Haman... Hmm, okay, well, I guess let's, let's get into it. Yeah, let's we'll real talking. quick. I, to transition us, I have a dumb joke. Can I say it? Sure. Go for it. Where do you think Lieutenant Tachi picks up his power converters? <laughs> okay. That is dumb. No, no, no. Okay, but the problem... No, I can't. I can't. That's fine. Let's move on. That's fine. It's it's not... Mm, no, I have to now. But no, it's fine. We'll move on. So we have deep hatred in fighting. No, that's no, I want to know. <laughs> Wait, well, do, we get the, do we get the punchline? Well, that's it. No, that's, that's the punchline. That's it? That's, that's what I'm saying. That's the punchline. Okay. That's the joke. All right. <laughs> Because Lieutenant, because because all right, I'm out of here. <laughs> what Stephen is referencing is Toshley Station, Toshi Station. I know. And I did look it up for the sake of the joke, but I had to do it. I didn't know that. I didn't know the guy who runs Toshley Station was in a deleted scene that was cut out. There's yes. a lot of. Okay, it's a Star Wars thing. Of course, there's a Star Wars thing. Do you know it's a Star Wars thing? I don't know. Yeah, no, I've what, never heard Toshley of this station st- before. No, this is what Luke is Mark warning Hamill about. Pr- yeah, Doesn't Luke Hamill kind of pronounce it like Tachi, Tachi Station. Luke very Hamill, close. the oh, famous Star Wars hero. Yeah, he says, uh, "But I was going to go down to Tachi Station to pick up some power converters." And and Uncle Owen, who who is about to be a skeleton, says, "Yeah, do you ever watch Robot Chicken once in your life?" You'll be you'll, <laughs> you're, like every other episode. Uh, I mean, I've never. I no, really I've never. I mean, like, now Chicken. that you're saying it, I recognize the line. But it's like you know, it's like Nerf Herder. Who would who would talk about that line? It's a throwaway <laughs> line. A lot. Who's scruffy a looking? A lot of people. Yeah, that's a great line, PMC. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. <laughs> no, the Toshley Station thing was a pull. I get that. <laughs> anyway, it's fine. Mobile Suit Gundam has nothing to do with Star Wars. I don't know what this you're is all talking about. my last episode of Machinations. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Anyway, anyway, let's let's move on from complaining about structure and how things are, are similar and... Complain instead about something that I've been complaining about nonstop since we've started this show, which is uh, the way that characters are framed. So, <laughs> it's, I mean, you know, listen. No, I know. I mean, I, 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 again, there are certain scenes I watch and I feel Ignis uh, over my shoulder. I mean, I feel his, I feel his anger. I, I share it. I think I know the scene you're talking about. It's not about. even really anger. Like, anger is not like, I because that's the thing I want to be, this is why I started the episode with what I was talking about, is because the, the real thing I'm picking at is this sense that this show is is held up in the zeitgeist as a a relatively not balanced but like a show that is critical of the protagonists in a way that helps it be like a, a little bit closer to what you'd want in in this sort of style of show and that it has shortcomings to that to be sure but those shortcomings have more to do with like you know the individual wolf the individual foibles of a, of you know a weirdo who's in charge right and and that's i, I think that partially true i think where i'm a little where i get a little surprised is how much the show has this like lost cause energy to it that that no one has ever talked about (laughs) or at least you know to to my like immediate sort of uh, uh memory as far as i know when it comes to like you know 
uh, uh, I don't actually, when it comes to this particular show, Mobile Suit Gundam, now that I think about it, I don't think I've actually listened to that much material about this. Uh, I, I guess I would just be talking about fucking form arguments. But my, 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 my point remains <laughs> that, like, the, the, would you just agree with that characterization that, about what I said about Mobile Suit Gundam? I think I agree with you now, but I can look into the past and I can see a past PMC watching this and, and maybe having some of the same thoughts of those, those forum posters, which is to say there, you know, there's a, a line of thought that, it, that, oh, this is a show that it is not painting the enemies as evil cartoon characters that makes it more mature. Now, of course, we're doing the accounting. We're pointing out, like, but wait a second. Like, you know, they live in evil house and dropped space colonies on the, on the Earth and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, like, this really... What we're doing isn't treating everyone human. We are allowing... You know, we're... We're, we're viewing a, a show which is painting, the you know, the soldiers for this, in you know, awful invading army as human, which feels more like in the context of the universe, like propaganda or something like that, right? Lost cause. That's that's actually that revisionist propaganda. So like, I can see why people at one point, I can see why an immature version of myself would view it that way. But like, absolutely. Now I've come around to that to the point where I'm like, why, why aren't, why isn't the conversation on this show more in this direction? I, and like, there's a I, there's a, a real argument, Stephen. I don't know. I don't want to cut you off before you had a chance to chime in. Do you have a thought on there uh, on the the idea of like the the uh, reality of the show as compared to maybe your the idea of that you had about it based on the zeitgeist and your own memory? Yeah. Number one, Gundam in the spheres I inhabit and I am witness to, Gundam Wing is still very much elevated to a show that critiques power structures, and I don't think the show doesn't do that, but I don't... There are certain aspects of the critique that have gone unexamined in corners where I figure they would have been examined by now. Not to say that we are unearthing some sort of new criticism, no, but I feel no. like when people think about... This is a generalization, but I feel when people think about Mobile Suit Gundam, the 40-year-old TV show, they also think about Gundam entirely. So anything that occurs any media property set during the one-year war i feel like all that world building and critique gets lumped into one and i think people sometimes forget especially like maybe the middle stretch of episodes i'm not sure if it like writes the ship but there are some there are some there's some i'm surprised this lens hasn't been applied more critically because people like universally not universally but overwhelmingly um praise mobile suit gundam as like the the 44 the 40 plus episode gundam show that kind of gets it right and I don't think it gets it wrong, but there's still a lot of work to be done. It's it's interesting, right? Because the the okay, so the scene we're talking about here is, is we see Haman and her men are are gathering what they have available to them in order to make a one last assault on the white base, and it's really focused on at the the resources they have. It's not as focused on their their motives or you know what what you know what the individual is is feeling or thinking at this point and and actually the the thing that they end up showing us is the degree to which they are dedicated to you know their their you know their cause here there which is this mission that that is kind of you know i don't want to i don't want to get too deep in the weeds here because i'm not an expert on on this in a military degree right i really truly do not know i'm super uh, uh naive about this stuff and and i know nowadays 
you get really complicated with, you know, no offense, PMC, but real-life PMCs that basically do have little strange insular communities of, you know, trained combatants that, that, you know, maybe have their own structure but aren't necessarily, you know, within a military structure. Or, you know, a lot of those times, as I understand it, those companies are, like, people that were in a structure and then no longer in that structure for A, B, or C reason, you know? Um, again, I don't know shit for fuck about this, and, and this is the sort of thing that I know exists in the world because it's Hell World, but uh, with with uh, Ramba and his men and Haman, their whole situation, to me, has been very unclear in a way that I, I feel like could be... Like, I know there's an answer to this, right? I'm sure I could go to the Gundam Wiki and it will tell me... Like, I, I looked the other day and, and, and lists uh, Haman as, like, a forced commander... Or something like that, uh, which I I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> yeah. And so you know, there's, but this is not this is not information that's in the show necessarily. So you know, when I'm thinking about the the their resources and what they have available versus the the white base and what they have available, what's interesting about this episode and and part of why I would sort of push against the idea that this one is. Like what's interesting about this one is that and and the Iselina strikes back is that these two are the ones that weirdly are the closest that the Gundam ever gets to being like th- physically threatened by like a combatant, right? Both of those times are the two that the Gundam, you know, when when uh, Elsa Frozen crashed the the Gao into a uh, into Amaro, and and this time when uh uh, uh you know Haman gives Amaro the the dodge this. I mean, ugh, never mind. I can't. Steven, oh, we really yeah, have to fix yeah. Speaking this. of references that might go over people's heads. Yeah, geez. Uh, that's a Matrix reference, Steven. Never oh, mind. Okay. It's fine. Don't it's worry about fine. it. Um, but anyway. The, the, I played Conker's Bad for a day. I got the, <laughs> the thing, okay. So the thing about this scene, you know, we talked about framing before. Is that like, this is like, they're heroes, right? Like the Xeon soldiers here are like, you know, Haman is like, okay. I'm, you know, I'm, we're going to do this mission. We don't really have to anymore because we don't have any support. And this was the thing I was trying to get to. I don't know how, like, official it is, right? Because, like, you'd imagine, I don't know, if this was the the Zabi family, if Cassilia was like, okay, let's put out, like, a fucking hit squad for whoever killed uh, Garma, uh, and this will appease Dad or whatever, then you would imagine that they would get kitted out, right? And and that's not really what happened. And we understand there's politicking going mm-hmm, on, right? Mm-hmm. Where maybe there was some kind of, like, understanding, and then once they were out on the field, Makave, you know, just right, fucked it all up for them. them. Yeah. Right. Um, but the, you know, the thing that's interesting to me is that we have this situation where they're so, you know, uh, uh, they, they, it's the the situation is desperate for them. They basically ha- are up against the ropes, um, and they have an opportunity before them. But for me, as an audience member, other than the connection that we they have to Ram Baral and just how cool of a soldier he is, I'm not positive I understand where their motivations are here. So when it's very clear that they're just the most noble possible soldiers around and they're so dedicated to the cause here it really makes me like them and in a way that's you know what what what, why we this is a weird thing to spend time on especially in this episode right 
where you could have had imagined a world where um, instead of Ryu getting out of his bed to meet everyone to have a, a tour of the white base, you could have had everyone come to Ryu's bed and be like, hey, man, you're my bud. And to have like a different flavor of interaction with him that would characterize each and everyone's relationship to this dude that we've all, you know, forced to have a relationship to because of the nature of, of the situation on Gundam. And that's not really, you know... That's not really what we do. I'm not saying, listen, because the point of the scene is to establish what their resources are. But the other thing that they do is they 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 make Haman and everyone seem like the coolest fucking people around. Yeah. I mean, like, that's a big thing. I feel like in this episode is that we have uh, two characters who ca- kind of cast shadows in which everyone is like super compulsively reacting to. Uh, in this case, you know, you have the soldiers and Haman reacting to the death of, of Rambaral, and then later on we have the you know the white base crew reacting to the death of Ryu, and you sort of have to like accept the impact of the dead character on everyone else by how they react. Yeah, it's it's you know I just uh, it's weird it's weird to do the the shower scene with with Haman because because I feel like it's this weird sort of like like audience character intimacy that's occurring here like well she's about to die so here here's the hint of nudity for you and and like in in a way that's like I don't know I could sort of buy the weirdness from this lady just because she has been established to have previous nasty energy and we will see her deploy this nasty energy later um it's just like this whole thing leaves me cold just because there is a romanticization here that that isn't like there's a generosity to these characters that isn't applied to the other characters for the purposes of drama to to a degree that I I somewhat understand but a part of me finds the whole thing exhausting at the same time yeah. like you know and that's why i think for for the for the sake of our audience you know did, unless you guys did you have anything else you wanted to say about this whole bit where i mean for if you didn't watch along they've got the gallop they've got uh what is it like six magella tops or or four they like, yeah, or they something like, duct like that tape three magella tops to this hovercraft because i'm not sure if this one is, is this one the because this is like the the son of Gallop or something. I don't think because the Gallop was mostly destroyed because then the cockpit flew away. So I wasn't sure oh, if this sure. was another Gallop or if this was like son of Gallop or or yeah, Gallop two. Gallop uh, Jr. They actually weren't weren't specific about that because mm-hmm. you're right. I forgot that um, Haman escaped on the cockpit of the Gallop. So this is like some maybe it, this just might be the like hover device or yeah. something like that. Yeah, because this one is actually in, in an embarrassing way fairly easily dealt with once the uh, once the drama <laughs> ends. Yeah, um, uh, but uh, you know that's fine. Um, Real quick to put a bow on my own criticism of this because I've been reiterating really the same criticism. Like just to be clear, making a sympathetic or like quote unquote honorable villain isn't a bad thing. It, my biggest issue is the lengths Gundam goes to glorifying people like, particularly like Rambaral, at the expense of the White Brace crew, who at this point in time are all underdeveloped and underutilized, which is super disheartening and, like, super frustrating. Because the show, by the narrative structure of the show, it elevates the White Brace crew, whether you like it or not, to the position of heroes. Right. And here we are. We have no one to root for. And, like, this pageantry is exhausting. Because the character doesn't land for me in the first place, it didn't really elevate the drama too much for me or really elevate the stakes. I just think this time could better be spent elsewhere. And then there's a scene before that, and, you know, Hayato and Kai are, like, repairing the exterior of the white base. 
The ship has taken a beating. I love that shot. It. Very good. And a cool shot. Very cool shot. I just, like, what they're talking about, like, they, last episode, they tried to leave the white base, and, like, the show has such short-term memory when it comes to, well, most things. I wish they mentioned it. Oh, Steven, we can't. <laughs> if we if we were going to talk about how characters felt about things in in a previous episode, that, as well, that's to what the- I mean. Like, do you do you are you connecting to almost any character? Like, I occasionally connect to Amro now after I've warmed up to him. Like in the beginning, I connected more to Bright, but I'm like, I don't know why. Like, there's no character I'm like who I'm vibing with in this show, and there's a cast of like 25 plus of them. Maybe <sighs> Job Job for the name Jim Job. You're you're pre- you're gonna force me to cancel myself on here because uh, I'm gonna say this now at this point and and we're not all the way through it yet and it's just gonna like invalidate everything I have to say in the like mecha community because I find the characterization of Amaro really three dimensional and interesting I-, I think that this is a kid who as compared to like the the other in a sort of weird reverse Roshiu way. Like, he, he is kind of, like, he sort of has the super robot rules for him, uh, but it also works in a kind of negative way where n- nothing he does works out in his favor ever. Like, it, it, it's sort of like, yes, he succeeds in a lot of the stuff that he does, but it always has this weird monkey paw thing to it in a way that I, I find a lot of the, the... And because he has to be relatable in a kind of novel way for these protagonists, I find a lot of his angst to be uh, believable. I feel like a lot of the reasons he would engage in it to be... Here's the thing, though. I'm an old man now, Right. And the thing about recognizing a lot of where what is valuable about what's going on with the character is that it, it requires a little bit of maturity, right? Like, it, re- it requires acknowledging that, you know, a character would go through these things, which is not fun to watch, right? That's the thing about it is that, like, PMC, did you have thoughts on this? Or were you, it looks like you, you were... No, no not really. Okay, never mind. Yeah. So, so no, for me, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, Amaro works for me in a big bad way. And, and in, in, to a degree where, you know, I, I, I feel like there are people who might disagree with what I have to say week to week who are listening and, and finally it all clicks for them. Well, it's like, oh, well, no wonder all this Xeon stuff bothers you so much is because you're, 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 you're caping for Amaro over here. And like, here's the thing I want to be clear about. You know, when this kid sucks, I'm, I'm go. I'm ready to drop this kid. When he sucks, like I'm sure he's gonna say some shit. I know about shit he says in the future. <laughs> Here's my thing, though. The thing that I've noticed is that, like, it's kind of interesting how how many characters or how many people who watch the show are are willing to throw Amro to the wolves for things that he does, as compared to stuff that, you know basically rich beautiful shark can do all day long and no one has the same problem about in the in a way that's interesting and you know i i've i remember shark's counterattack i know that characters just kind of do things and you just kind of have to roll with it and that's what being interested in gundam's all about baby is not not character stuff pmc i'm curious did you do you have a character right now that you're you're caping for i think the Right now, so I, I previously was on the, the really caping for, for Amuro because I really wanted the uh, desertion scenario to pay off in a big bad way. It didn't really do quite that for me, so I have now moved on to uh, to celebrating and championing uh, Kai. I think Kai is really... I'm ready to be in Belfast with Kai. I think that will be promising. I Like I said last episode, I am warming to Kai. I don't think, I, I don't think I'm using... Okay, no, never mind. Never mind. 
I was about to be like, I think I'm using the opposite of caping. Caping might be making fun of something oh, no. or taunting something. No, but I looked it up, and caping is defending or supporting. Okay. So that's fine. All right. That's good. fine. Because I was thinking of caping like 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 a like a matador match, mm. right? Like you're caping the the bowl, like you you're know, like the, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> How about you? Um. All right. So, yeah, I mean, listen, I think, Steven, I think your critique is not incorrect. I don't think character is the number one priority here, especially not the, to your point, the protagonist's characters that much, you know, because I think for, you know, if I was a defender for this approach, the number one thing I would say is that they're we're trying something novel, right? Like, this is not how other protagonists would be painted in other shows who are often like paragons or cops or, you know, space cyborgs or whatever i mean that's this is the thing that gets where it gets tricky is that like when every show is trying to be a novel version of the protagonist there's you end up in this weird situation where there aren't that many super clear examples of just a straightforward version of that protagonist this is kind of that weird thing of like uh like in your mind you think there's a ton of stuff that has like featuring starring luke skywalker in star wars stuff beyond the movies and like there is, if you include the EU, there is. But other than that, not really. He hasn't been in that much stuff. Anyway, I, I can't believe I talked about Star Wars again. How does that keep happening? Ryu is in hospital. He's in the hospital, as as uh, the, the British would say. And maybe more than the British, I don't know. Maybe everybody other than Americans say that. Um, and uh, Haro comes to Ben and he's like, wow, you're dying. Wow, you're dying. <laughs> and I was like, okay. This is why Russell doesn't trust Haro. I mean, <laughs> Russell might be onto something. This was particularly alarming. And, and then Haro's like, I'm healthy. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> I will feast on your flesh. And it's like, okay, Haro. Maybe you go You promised away. me flesh. <laughs> <laughs> Look at me now, father. <laughs> we, are, we are referencing a Star Wars parody. So it's still on, on point. We're still on topic. Right. So Ryu's in hospital. He's he's fine. He's recovering. Uh, uh you know, he's concerned about what what uh, uh Bright is attempting to do with Amaro. And like it's weird, right? Because a lot of times the 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 format of these Gundam episodes are like there is a so we we get the the situation for the episode from both sides, right? And then there will be a short hiccup or a small hiccup on the Federation side which will require us to watch it be resolved. And usually it's resolved in a way that doesn't actually interact with the like main action of the episode. Usually like sometimes it'll be the setup for why a thing occurs. So like, for example, last week we had the mass desertion of all the male characters. Um, and so Ryu had to go and get them. We're going to jump to the white base. You know, he had to do that. Um, but that didn't really prevent the defense of the white base, right? Like, they, they mostly were able to do what they were going to do anyway if they were all there. And, like, there's a similar thing in this episode, right? Which is that Bright has put Amaro in the brig, and Ryu's worry is that Bright isn't taking... This is It's interesting, right? Because Ryu is kind of voicing the thing that I was concerned about last week or the week before, which is that... Bright isn't approaching this the right way. The thing that's interesting is that Ryu has performed interesting, like, psychic self-amnesia on himself 
to remove any any sort of participation he may have had on the Amro process not working. Yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> sometimes when you you punch someone, you just forget about it. Like it just, it's, you it's know, just... it's like it's like a reverse <laughs> uh, concussion or something. I don't know. It, it just slipped I, his mind. Here's the thing. Here's here's what I would say. You know, um, Ryu, if if we had some knowledge of who this dude was, right, you could argue that he would see what he did as directly confronting the problem in a way that Bright just isn't doing, mm-hmm. right? The The issue for me is that I, I, when we were presented with the solitary confinement in originally, it didn't come off as though this was for Amuro's own good. And to the degree that, like, supposedly this is the reason that Hayato bailed in the first place, right? Is that like, once he heard that the solitary was like for Amuro's own good or whatever, that was apparently the the straw that broke the camel's back, you know, in that one episode and no longer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's my complaint. I mean, it's so obvious what I'm going to say at this point. You, you, you two just basically echoed it, but like it's the guy who physically assaulted Amuro for daring to challenge authority playing, you know, you know, number one cop. And now he's like, Hey, what about what about my friend Amaro? That's my biggest issue. Like we're talking about characterizations. They do and say things when it's convenient for the plot. Ra- rather than I would like to say, rather than staying true to their guiding principles, but we don't know really what those guiding principles are because we weren't given insight into that problem. Yeah, I will say one thing though. Amar, uh, so May- Ryu does say something that could be consistent with more his more authoritarian characterization in previous episodes because he says. You've never really talked to Amuro, have you, Bright? The tiger will never be tamed then. It's an interesting word choice, because he doesn't say, like, to cooperate with the tiger. I know it's a strange metaphor to use, cooperating with the tiger, but it speaks of taming the tiger. Um, so I'm curious how much Ryu has changed from the previous characterization. Does he just want Amuro to get his life to get a little bit better so he can be then, quote-unquote, tamed and follow orders? You know, it's interesting, and I don't know if the the different... I don't know if maybe the dub approaches this in a different way, but uh, later, Ryu, uh, he when he's talking to Amuro outside of his cell, he he kind he claims that Bright thinks of him as a tiger, as though that wasn't something that Ryu said, right? Yeah. Ryu's the one who uses the you know the tiger will <laughs> never be tamed, and then later he's like, you know, Bright thinks you're a tiger, and if I was Bright, I was like, I would be like, well, I didn't. You use that metaphor, not me. <laughs> you know, I didn't. I didn't say that shit. <laughs> And it's weird, right? Because, again, there's a world where I can imagine the character of Ryu as being the sort of guy who doesn't even realize that he's owning his own shit, that he's not owning his own shit there, right? That he's just saying stuff and that's just the sort of dude he is, right? Where he's not super mindful about that sort of stuff. But again, this is like... This is the crazy thing about this episode. Like, they're suddenly deciding now that this character matters to all these people in this kind of way, right? Like, I don't... I don't know if, like, Amuro, you, like, this interaction between these two, I sort of buy, right? Because they're, at the very least, they're, like, sort of brothers in arms or whatever, and they've never had the sort of adversarial, other than that time when Ryu was, like, these last couple episodes where Ryu was, like, a huge piece of shit, you know, then this, this now is within the context of the time where, all the times where Ryu was impressed with Amuro for his patience and his tactics or whatever, like, I could buy this. It's just that we've had such a long break from this version of the relationship between Ryu and Amuro that this feels random. And and then, when it gets to Sela and Mirai and Bright, even, like, we just haven't had situations where, like, you know, if you can imagine a scene where fucking Ryu shows up to the, the bridge and he has a 
I don't know, he has roasted potatoes for everybody, and he just passes it around to everybody, and he's just like, hey, you know, you gotta eat too, you know, there's there's just a ton of opportunity for these, for little moments that you could have peppered in here, and like, listen, it's kind of hack to to be like, oh, if I was making Gundam, this is what I would do, like, that's not, my, the thing that I'm I'm expressing here is that it, the, the goal of this episode is to present Ryu as this like the the number one dude on like the super bro on the white base and i'm into that as a practice it's just weird to do it all in this episode and you know especially like five minutes after like maybe the coolest people i've ever seen in gundam period and it's all the zeon people because that's that's just the people who are allowed to be you know that level of valorous on the show even like ryu here it feels like I don't know. There's a part of me that's also... Did you, did you guys get tired of all the people just not staying in bed? You know, of, of people just like... Like, there's a... I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say, it people, feels like, people are unable to stay in bed. Like, people steal steal mobile suits. Like, it's just, just a chronic problem. Slapping, <laughs> leaving your hospital bed, <laughs> stealing mobile suits. Uh, these, are, these are problems that Gundam cannot and will not solve. Yeah, it's just this whole thing between uh, Ryu and Amuro is strange. Um, I find especially Amuro's, like, listen, I was just talking about how I feel like Amuro comes off to me as realistic. This is the most patient, understanding boy in the world in this episode. Because he's sitting here and Ryu's like, hey, are you mad at Bright? And Amuro's oh, like... I mean, you know, I, I'm kind of over it. I get it. You know, I understand his position. I say locked in Remember a cell. Remember the scene last episode? He was yelling at the world through the bars. It's just, you know, it's fine. It's just like, there's, again, like, I was just just saying, like, how I find the character kind of uh, textured in a way that I think is interesting. And this is like a weird sort of reversal of that, where... Like, there's a, you know, and this is the thing I was worried about last week when I was complaining about this is, you know, we're, we're just going to forget this. Like, this is not going to be a thing that's going to matter in, and in, I'll tell you what, this won't matter in one whole episode. (laughs) This whole thing about being put in solitary in the brig and taming the tiger will not come up in 22 at all. (laughs) Like, 22, you could splice, like, immediately after like i don't know 15 and it won't wouldn't feel that weird really <laughs> um but that's it's fine uh ryu is not doing great because he refuses to recover and and what's interesting and this probably is trying to like work into the tragedy of it all is that you know uh, he speaks to amuro and like i said amuro is the most perfect beautiful boy in the world and so he's not even mad about the the you know unethical treatment that he's being put under it like you know uh, con- counter to what Ryu's worried about bright's plan has worked perfectly apparently <laughs> like that timer that tiger done tamed himself <laughs> so um Haman is going to attack with her. So something we failed to mention with the setup is, and PMC, you were correct to, to point it out for us, is that uh, in addition to the four Magella tops and the remaining half of the gallop, as it turns out, uh, uh, there's also a worn-out Zaku, which is like whatever. The thing that's interesting about telling us that it's worn out is that it it, it could be in tip-top shape for all we know. Like That, that kind of information means nothing to me personally. It, it's a Zaku, whatever. Uh, the attack begins, and 
you know, that's it. What we saw previously, and we commented on this because it was a great visual, is that we've already got the gun tank and the gun cannon deployed just to help out with some of the exterior repairs that's going on. I mean, the whole episode starts with an incredible image of the gun tank uh, acting as a platform for the gun cannon, which is acting as a platform for, I think it's Kai yeah, or, it's Kai. or somebody. I'm pretty sure it's Kai. Um, and Hayato, it's funny, you know, we didn't talk about it because it's barely a scene, really, but, uh, it, it, and also because Steven Hero would, would start to, steam would start to, start to come out of his ears as he would boil over in fear and fury and rage, but Hayato is in the cockpit, and he's talking about, he's not, it's funny, because Bright is like, quit complaining, but like, really, for me, Hayato's just kind of expositing, he's just announcing, like, man, we're really low on like supplies and shit this we should probably try to be careful and bright's like stop complaining idiot and i'm like i'm like damn bright you should back off of somebody who's just been like abandoning ship you know? yeah i, I mean they're thinking- definitely i feel like maybe there the there's more of the thread of uh bright running thin like i don't know to what extent sure. this yeah. foreshadows the next episode but they definitely do it multiple times because it happens later too as well where um you, like the Gundam parts aren't available, so Amuro just launches initially in the core fighter, and Bright's like, well, I guess Amuro's gonna do whatever he wants, and it's like, so like shut up. Yeah, that, Bright at his most petulant. That next bit is so strange, right? Because, again, like, there's also, like, like uh, Bright is says the words, we will not survive without the Gundam, and then is all pissy later when... The process of getting the Gundam out requires the, the 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 Gundam pants and top to be launched, which is gonna. It's like our oh, magnet, whatever is is out of whack, and it's like I don't like. There's a certain point where for me the and this is kind of the point of what they're doing, and so I applaud this. Um, there's a certain amount of the chaos where I can't even trace emotionally where I'm supposed to be or who is supposed to be at at, at fault, or if anybody, right? Like you see what I'm saying with the like the the way that the dominoes even fall it's it's not even really like I guess if you're a, a bright person you can you can be mad at Amaro for for being Amaro but like I don't know for me I th- am a bright person and man I was like bright you're making it really hard for me to go on this podcast and say something nice about you man <laughs> I don't know PMC do you see what I'm saying you feel like I I I feel like I'm I'm having doing a poor job of communicating my point but do you feel like I you picking up what I'm putting down yeah it's just kind of, as you said just sort of like the sometimes the the dominoes have to fall a certain way yeah it's just so one of the things I want to mention before before it leaves my mind, is one of the things that I love, I will forever love, Bright and his phone-ass phone that he yeah. uses to communicate all of the, the orders on. And in that front, uh, uh, one of the other things that I, I noticed is that this phone-ass phone is, like, near identical to the phone-ass phone that the the Admiral of the Eldridge uses in the opening of Xenogears, famously uses a phone ass phone to make a, the, a call to like engineering or whatever but deus has already like eaten them or whatever the fuck is going on <laughs> it's so funny to see his 1990s yeah. very brick ass the, the spaghetti rebellion already happened in engineering and so yeah. the spaghetti does not pick up the phone that's very true the spaghetti did not answer so Sela Sela is going to release uh amuro with when we learned the the flawless code that we've we they attached to the code the the door which is f37 uh uh perfect and you know this is the last time we'll hear about this this is not like he gets out of the break and it basically had no effect on him and he, he we're basically back to the status quo of pre 
abandoning ship and uh that that's we really do get back there though because one of my favorite amuro bits in this episode is when he he talks shit on the regular military he's like come on man i just need you to shoot the parts out the catapult like geez i thought this guy was regular military like come on can i get some help around here i thought these were soldiers Oh, so it, it's interesting, and maybe maybe in the dub that's how it comes off, and and or maybe I just wasn't paying mm-hmm. attention. I I sort of thought it, it was a bit more of a neutral comment than that. Like okay. I, it felt like to him, like you know, I I, I do I see what you're saying 100, mm-hmm. percent and this is probably just me not being paying attention. But the way it comes off is almost more like he's going like, ah, okay, he's he's military. That's why either why he picked it up right away or at least announced to me why he didn't know why to pick it up right away um i don't know it could be uh, pmc i'm I'm happy to defer to you in this one i'll tell you (laughs) that's one of the situations where uh, i think the i recall uh, uh, the dub being more neutral and to me the subtitle because i usually watch with the english dub with the subtitles going the subtitle because it was like oh regular military um i i guess read to me more that way obviously i'm not listening to the Japanese audio, so that inflection I am not getting. Um, but for what, the combination of the two things to me was like, yeah, Amaro. Uh, well, because the other thing too is I'm also thinking of Amaro's ego, which you know, love him or hate him, I feel like is a topic in the show, and so that's also you know why I interpreted it that way was this is a situation where Amaro is like, look, I'm ready to do. We all know as of these episodes that Amaro can just do midair conversions whenever he wants and he can right. tell other people how to do them and things will work right. out. Well, the yeah, issue I read it a little, your, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Steven. I, I like Ignis. I read it a little more neutrally because I think this is the show really tipping its hand. Like this is the show speaking here, because this is like a key component of the show. If, if you like buy the thesis of the show, whether or not it's effective power structures, uh, inevitably corrode instant. Now institutions inevitably corrode. You have the Xeon, even though they're just, Displayed very gallantry at times. Um, you have the Xeon bad, Federation bad. Here, though, on the white base, you have this group of misfit people who come together, form a family, and what do you know it? They end up being more skilled on the battlefield than the Federation itself. Right. I mean, for me, to that you know, to that point, the the thing that this was coming off as was like a, you know. There's a, a sort of marriage to protocol that he's almost sort of teasing him about. That there's a sort of like because the the thing the issue at hand here is that this dude has only read the manual he doesn't hasn't actually done it and Amra's point is that welcome you know welcome to the fucking like it's such a and then this is the thing that's interesting about that comment and why I'm open to what PMC is saying is like we're 21 episodes in and that's the fucking premise my man like that was that's the whole idea like why are we reiterating to the rock come on brother yeah a little bit like just just like you know. I, so to that end, I'm open to it being sarcastic. It's just not how it came off to mm-hmm. me. So the battle begins. Uh, Amon is here. Mostly that one Zaku's there holding the the Magellic uh, top as like a. a I do actually it. think that is the most interesting detail. I, mean, I, I almost mentioned it earlier when you were talking about like, is it important that the Zaku is described in the episode as being worn out? And the answer is no, not really. What I do think is cool that it is that it has an improvised weapon that is a you know like a harvested Magella cannon. Yeah, that's actually pretty fun. No, I agree. I think that's fun. No, 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 totally. And it's this, the sort of logic that you imagine. It's it's. I think we've described with with Mex before uh, the, the concept called like visual logic, right? Where uh, and we talked about this a lot with the Big O. 
the big guy has in as part of his design these big pistons on his arms and and part of the appeal of the big o is not even seeing how the pistons work just imagining what the pistons will do when they go off and the the great reward of the big o is that they do go off and it's and it's great <laughs> it is great in fact and there's a similar sort of thing going on here uh where you're you know uh, uh, you think of a mech being able to pick up something like, like a tank or a jet or something like that, and there's almost a child logic of being able to like pull the trigger inside of these these giant vehicles that are, definitely do not work that way. Um, but you know, there's a, there's an action figure logic to it that I think works right. Um, and even just what? the play. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. One of the cool things about the many uh, OVAs that take place during the one-year war, I'm particularly thinking of 08th MS team here, is that you can see these these very basic designs in Mobile Suit Gundam, and then you could see them at a greater visual fidelity later on. Because I remember the Magella tanks do reappear in 08th MS team, and it's right. super cool to see them in a slightly more grounded style. Um, so, yeah, even going back to any of the, like, uh, even going back to a, oh, uh, not 08th MS team, uh, War in the Pocket, too, you see that. It's really fun. Yeah, I think um, one of the things for for me that I appreciated was uh, I, I'm not a stickler for like firing strength, right? You know, I, I'm not super. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to get worn out about uh, you know the consistency with this stuff necessarily. But one of the things I liked, and I wish that they they leaned into a little bit more, was in in this battle. You know, the Gundam is holding back the, the Galapath that is full of explosives that, that Amuro has intuited, by the way. Nobody has told him this. Like, that some, this isn't, like, uh, a distribution of labor sort of situation where the operators were like, hey, that thing's full of readings that feel dangerous. Like, Amuro just figures this shit out. And something that I've, I've failed to mention that I want to shout out is there is a weird running sort of situation in the episode of, like, I don't. I almost want to call it like psychic resonance that's going on between Amaro and and Haman a little bit, and and the the, the we see this in the form of like you know I don't want to be crude, but like a, a sort of like wet dream that Amaro has in in solitary when he kind of he makes this or at least the show makes this connection between Amaro or I'm sorry Haman Amaro and Matilda. Right. And and that sort of weird through line carries out because of the way that the episode has previously connected Haman to Amaro. Uh at least in my opinion, I don't know. PMC, you're giving me a look that's making me nervous. <laughs> were you were you not were you not wet, feeling this? Wet dream wasn't on my machinations bingo card for this episode. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's quite like the feeling is there, you know? Is it literal? Doesn't matter. But certainly the because, and I, I think the feeling is there, especially because of the coloring, which I think you've already you already alluded to, but it is very um very strong. You, it, I I feel like I haven't the last time I feel like I saw coloring of a scene that strong, and something that we watched for Mechanations was that goddamn saber rattling scene from Gundam Wing <laughs> with with Zex and Noin. like yes. same kind of energy as that. Well, so like the thing that I the main thing I want to highlight is even if you disagree with what I what I think it is specifically, the main thing I want to highlight is that they they're they're bringing up Matilda now, right, in this episode with Haman in it, right? And Haman goes out of her way to basically call up the memory of Amaro in basically the same light. Like if you go and you check out those two 
sequences, they're comparable, right? Like, it's not the same. It's not a Trails of Cold Steel situation, I don't think, necessarily, even though these two aren't related. But it it is definitely, uh, to me, I think these two ideas are connected. That's all I wanted to say. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not to the extent that, that uh, you know, I, it caught to me. But that's what I was thinking of this episode. Um, Ryu is, you know, I don't know. Uh, how hard would it have been to just have someone shove Ryu into a bed and just strap him down at this point? How how hard would it have been? <laughs> like, because there's a certain point. So later in this episode, after the deed is done and Ryu is, is dead, everyone kind of goes on this, like, shame tour where they try to take the blame for 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 his his death and like you know i do think it's a little bit of hayato i, I think i'm gonna give it to hayato on this one. you're not gonna throw like, job john under the bus no because job john um you know i i think in a situation like this a heated situation like this where you do you are confronted with someone who does legitimately have more experienced than you in this particular thing like this isn't like you know i'm i'm taking i'm looking at code and like i'm just i can't fucking figure out why it's not working and then i I send it over to pmc and i'm like pmc what the fuck is wrong with this code and pmc's like there's a space after this comma i'm like fuck you know it's not like that you know (laughs) like this is people are going to die Right. And so for Job John, especially a dude who I, I don't know if he's a, if a civilian dude or a military dude or what have you, like I can definitely see Ryu, who is one of the only military dudes they have, coming to him and being like, hey, you should, you know, this is life or death. You got to put me in here. And he's like, oh, okay, whatever, sir. But like Hayato could definitely be like, dude, you shouldn't even. Why the fuck are you in a buggy out here, man? Like, like, and again, the point of the whole point of the episode is that everyone is 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 you know there's a certain amount of blame to go around like i think for me i, I do appreciate bright's sort of uh, uh, uh emphasis on the, the everyone's inexperience being the thing that that you know eventually brought about uh reuse uh reuse death actually some i'm sorry i need to round back because i didn't mm-hmm. get to my my point really okay. before when i was saying i, I i'm not going to get hung up on firing strength because there's a cool bit in this episode where uh, the the Zaku attacks the Gundam from behind and uses the 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 heat axe to to get a good 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 side chunk in. And I'm like I'm I'm watching this. I'm like oh okay, this is how the Magella cannon is going to be able to pierce the Gundam and threaten it, right? Because mm-hmm. this is my memory of this episode. Is like okay, the Gundam is in a position now where it can't defend itself, and so now this this axe wound is going to be the 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 point where the 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 weapon attacks but no it is not <laughs> the 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 point of the, where the weapon attacks is against the like nigh indestructible shield that we've seen thus far and like here's the thing because this is fiction the 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 magella fires like one time and the the shield like instantly crumbles and i'm like oh okay <laughs> they must have so many shields like just between this and the next episode oh man i was thinking about that if i was the sort of person who was watching voyager and counting the amount of <laughs> yeah. shuttlecraft that get exploded or whatever like <laughs> I, I, like photon how, torpedoes like or like like how mobile suit gundam must just like bother me if i was that sort of person because you're right the shields are they just must have a truck like full this is of a shields. closet you just open it up and it's like doug's wardrobe gundam shields yes they exactly. just dropping them off every other day so, like, I will say, as much as I don't really know if I understand it that well, 
I do like this little move that he does to flip this oh, dude into the Magella. <laughs> it's, I'm not really sure I get the, like, physics of it super well, but, like, as an idea and the way that it's shown to us, I thought it was very funny. It was very Smash Brothers for some reason. Like, I don't know, this Zaku is above 100% and the Gundam did the forward throw and that's just enough. Like, Ness, you know, like, that's kind of the logic that gets used here. I don't know, it was fine. Um, it, it was just, I, I thought it was interesting also, um, something we, we didn't talk about, or we, we, we spoke on it just a little bit, which is that, like, Ryu gets a lot of, like, dad moments in this episode, or, like, bruh moments, really, uh, and one of the ones that I, I did like was when he's like, hey, Frau Bao, go get on the fucking anti-air cannons, hey, 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 put on a helmet, you, you'll definitely Your protection, man, <laughs> come on. No, no, no! Totally. That's I, I was endeared by that. Even if I was annoyed by the, like the practice of it, I, just like the, the idea. The second time watching, I almost wondered if it was like I need to be able to sneak past her. I'm gonna make her wear ear protection, which I don't oh, think that's... it is. But like, I <laughs> the thought crossed my mind. Like, is that what you're up to, you sly devil? No. the The point is, it might it might be too little, too late, just in this episode. But I think it is truly, you know, establishing his sincerity. So here's the thing, I I you know we I have my problems with the characterization of Ryu and the way that this whole thing is broken down, but this scene where everyone's sad about it is very sad. It is a good scene where everyone's upset. The the children children's are crying, and and everyone's crying. Everyone's crying, and you know everyone has a normal one. And uh, thank goodness that Princess Zeon is here to tell us that. The, the thing that we need to do is uh, attack her enemies. You know, that's, a, that's a, thank goodness she's here to make that clear for us. I was really <laughs> trying to decide, like, because you're right. That is, like, absolutely. She's like, yeah, we got to go. The only thing we can do is attack her enemies. And I was trying to decide if tonally, because, again, I had mentioned earlier that I had viewed part of this episode as being, a, you know, invoking cycle of violence type topics. Mm-hmm. And here I'm wondering, is the crew, because the crew does not commit, I mean, maybe they don't have a target of vengeance, a specific target in the way that Haman did or mm-hmm. Isolina did, but nevertheless, how how much are they grieving and how much are they going to commit to vengeance? I don't know. I, I feel like the answer is, like I feel like they they were more focusing on the persevering part than necessarily the vengeance part, which seems like. Ah, yes, the kids are, are better than your normal adults, maybe. Um, but, of course, the other thing is that... Th- maybe we can talk about this in the next episode, but the sort of uh, legacy of this is a lot of bringing up Ryu and trying to convince us of their dependency on Ryu in the next episode. But I don't think they mention like necessarily how they're changing their behavior because right. of Ryu's absence, right? Like That's the thing that I would be looking for to further color my interpretation of is it about vengeance is it about perseverance so i mean and here's my and this is my kind of critique was a little bit more specific than that and and not even a critique because this might have been something that they're doing on purpose the the person who who rounds them around to you know who, who brings them around is what i meant to say is secretly you know, her motivation here is personal. Like, mm-hmm. her, like, she is not a member of the Federation who has, like, whose morals have brought them up against, you know, the Xeon, you know, principality or whatever. She is, you know, we don't know the details of it yet, but she is an ousted 
member of Zeon royalty, who who is essentially kind of at the spear's tip of the force that will bring about the destruction of the people she's specifically, you know, maybe not as precisely as as her brother, but she's specifically, you know, aimed against, right? Like, this is a... And part of this might be the tragedy of uh, none of these characters being super aware of it. And, like, I'm not even saying that Sayla is manipulating them, mm-hmm. right? I, I'm saying that this is a, a, a true thing about her as compared to the rest of them in a way that's almost kind of a bummer, right? It's kind of, a, uh, you know, it, it, it speaks poorly to, I think, some of the priorities of Mobile Suit Gundam that the character whose motivation we understand the most as it pertains to the Principality of Zeon is, is the mystery character who has never really had the opportunity to explain their backstory yet, but just from a per like, listen, I, I, I know I'm kind of projecting stuff that we're going to learn in the future, but even just from Ron Baral explaining that she used to be the princess of Zeon, like that alone should tell you something about why she would say, we got to go defeat Zeon. She probably right? has feelings. Right. It's it's not the same as if Hayato or Bright, you know, were like, we need to rally for the... And I'm not... The other thing I'm saying is I don't necessarily think the text is presenting it to us this way, right? There's a real possibility that they kind of just forgot or didn't know yet that, that this is what's going to be Sayla's, like, precise point of view. I don't even know, remember specifically if she's got the same thing that fucking Caswell's got going, where he, she's trying to, like you know, bring down individual members in that same sort of way. Um, But it was interesting to me that she was the one to do it because of that reason, right? That she is the one who has more of a personal vendetta that has more to gain from the white base moving on and, and, you know, putting being a a thorn in the paw of Zeon than anyone else here does. And, you know, in a way that I think is interesting. I don't know how intentional it is, you know, and I'm not, listen, Sailor Heads, I'm not, I'm I'm not talking shit on Sayla. It's it's not that. I just thought it was interesting. Steven, do you do you do you have am I I'm I'm I feel like uh, I look into your eyes and you look lost at sea. It looks like you were elsewhere. And I just want to make no. see. <laughs> no, I didn't bump on that scene. I like your read of it. I like listening to it. I didn't bump on that scene as much as I was too distracted by Bright crying. Um <laughs> anyone can cry. Crying's great. It's just that him like on the ground, like it looks like he's taking a crap. I just I couldn't get that image out of my mind. <laughs> I mean, wow. to to that end, I will say that, like, and listen, I'm I'm with you, Stephen. I understand why you said it that way because I agree with you. I I think that the the expression of emotion here, if anything, I find kind of endearing. But like the sort of way that like everyone jumps on board in like another context, it's almost like a comedy scene. Where there's like, just like, like and a Spartacus basically. Well, even that is not like because that's like there's a, there's an earnestness there. There's a, like you understand why the 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 men would be inspired to do this for Spartacus, and like th- here it, it's interesting when Bright like falls to his knees. Uh, you know, I, later for the purposes of the next episode, it's useful to understand where his mind is at. But I do agree that it's like. It's on the edge of being a little bit extra, where it's just like, and and this has a lot to do with just not having the the characterization work done for Ryu, where I just don't, there's no part of me that can impose the memory of the dude that they're on their knees sobbing over. I'm like, and the other thing I want to be clear, like, listen, if if a coworker 
of mine did did like a like a suicide attack to save my life like of course i would be devastated in this sort of sort of similar way when i'm i'm, I'm speaking about the the audience point of view here it's just you know i i feel like there is if job john did the attack instead of uh ryu we have just as much material to get upset about with job john that we then we do ryu you know what i mean like it's just Could as you- much could you imagine if they introduced Job John formally, like last two episodes, in order to kill him off this episode, and everyone like sobbing? I would have because s- he died. I would have so much Job Job died. Yeah, I would. No, I, I, that would be such a move. I would completely turn my opinion around on this whole bit. I would be like, actually, no, this is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I feel please, like that's the scene that Tomino would do now. Please respect like, Job John. <laughs> I will say, as my as a concluding thought for this scene, like I hope this scene serves its intended plot function, like to unify the crew of the White Base, even though it may be unearned and there might not be a logic behind it. Gundam really hasn't nailed the, all the plot lines involving trauma and descent, and I'm really glad they're included. But I kind of want to move to the next phase um, just to shake things up a bit, because like I mentioned, basically like I mentioned in every episode of Gundam since like episode ten, I feel like we're in the doldrums. And I want to blast off into space. And I I need this crew to work together because I want to start rooting for, like, a group of people. I, I think to that end, uh, Stephen, whichever your name is, um, the, the... Job John. Yeah, Job John, my co-host. Uh, I think this the, the death of Ryu is meant to be the taming of the tiger. I, I do believe that, that Drew Amaro, the fact that Ryu's, like, kind of last words were like, hey, I, I believe in you. I have a lot of faith that you'll succeed. Remember that time I punched you and said you were a psychic? It was, wasn't that great? <laughs> and, and I do think that this is supposed to be that, right? So it'll be interesting to see if this is like, you know, to compare it to, you know, some uh, another show that we covered that has an in- a, a similar arc with two comparable characters. I, I don't want to invoke this because obviously they do a lot more work than than the uh, Mobile Suit Gundam did. But this is this the same arc that they tried to do with, with uh, Kamina and Simone. Right, like uh, there's a, a the exact same thing going on here, and I'm and I'm curious to see if you know I say this like I didn't watch 22, and I know exactly what 22 is like. I'm curious to see if this carries forward in the future, and the answer to that is kind of yes, but it's interesting to see how that energy is deployed. Um, but I do think that'll wrap us up for 21. So why don't you boys join me? I've been let out of solitary, so now I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go get um, supply part number 133, which we should have plenty of. Yeah, of we course. Got that. Right over here. Yeah, let's check it out. Where's Mr. Bright? He's in the infirmary. What's the matter, guys? Well, how about Mirai? Yeah, Mirai just went over to the infirmary to check on Mr. Bright. Why'd she bother? Mira, I can just leave it to some mallow to care for him. All right. All right. All right. All right. That sounds like we're back. That sounds like we're here. It sounds like we're back since we're, you know, just before it leaves my brain entirely, we're recording this before uh, the announcement of the last Smash character. And I'm here <laughs> to announce I have inside scoop that it is, in fact, Cosmos. So uh, congratulations to Cosmos. I'm sure everyone's excited about Cosmos. You know, this will be coming out way after that announcement and uh, that all that tonight? footage. When, no, it's when? tomorrow. Oh, it's tomorrow? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's tomorrow. It's uh, It'll be, although now I did the thing I hate to do, but, uh, you know, it'll be, uh, it'll be, you know, tomorrow, uh, you know, set your calendars. Everyone will be very excited to see Cosmos announced for <laughs> Smash Brothers. Uh, uh, I'm glad to see the love for the Xeno community. Shout outs. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Let's get back to Gundam. We'll get to uh, 
uh, Mobile Suit Gundam episode 22. What did I call it this time? Let's see. Let's see what Ignis called it this time. Uh, okay, no. The, this time I called it the real name title of the episode. The Trap of Makuve. Mm-hmm. Makuve. McVeigh's Trap. McVeigh. This script was Kenichi Matsuzaki, the unit director was Shinya Sadamitsu, and the animation director was Yoshikazu Yasuhiko. The white base continues west for Odessa Day, but runs into way more resistance than they anticipated. Partially this is due to a lack of information in general, but it also appears that Makave has a mole on the side of the Federation, which is also delaying things further. Bright begins to fall victim to health issues, which cause him to collapse on the bridge. Mirai is forced to take command, while McVeigh executes his plan to deal with the white base. A bunch of tiny bombs will be planted. Pay no attention to the Tomino penned episode where this happened to the Gundam. Taking out Minovsky projectors and other important areas of the white base. Forcing them into a situation where they would take the safest possible route. Leading them directly into the path of a mega particle cannon which blasts right through one of the White Base's engines. The White Base is totally outnumbered and outgunned, and is only saved in the last moment by deploying smoke bombs, which makes the destruction appear more complete than it truly was. Mirai orders Sela to try and contact General Revel before leaving the bridge. I never ask you guys how you feel about the summaries after I'm done. Yeah, I feel like that it, yeah. it covered the, the what happens in the episode, right? You feel like that, I, I that hit covers all the important it. beats. You got the important yeah. big shots. Okay. We don't really, we probably, I probably should, but I don't really share these with the guys before we, we start to record these. So, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this one is, um, uh, let me think. Let me think about it. I think the last one, uh, I think the action had a, a real tension to it that I think was successful. I was really like, wow, they, Hamon's really going to get him. Um, this one starts with action right away, and a lot of it is uh, stuff we've seen before, very clearly, in a way that, like, you know, I don't want to say uh, uh, makes it, you know, trivial, but it, it, it does kind of call to question, like, oh, okay, wait a minute, uh, this is no Zaku boy, no Zaku he's fighting against, and, and we'll see tons of them. Tons of goofs that in in the in the coming in this episode and in the next of them one, and I hmm how do I put this I I brought this up in the summary, like and and this is something else I've I've brought up in previous weeks like in this episode they just get rocked they just get bopped they're they're totally in a way that is like hmm and I get why again this is the drama of the episode I'm not questioning the drama of the episode but like man this just should have happened already like a long time ago in fact like mm-hmm. it, it makes me question like. Why didn't this happen before? And and like there was probably an answer to it, but like I, I don't know. I guess before I really go off about how I felt about this episode, do you guys have bird's eye view about about how you felt about twenty two? I feel like this is a classic wartime action story because it is the escalating force meeting the uh, deeply shorthanded, short supplied crew and them having to survive. Uh, it's a very like. I mean, to me, like, I just enjoyed the flow of the action in this. I could talk about how I feel about uh, how the episode treats, I think, Bright and Mirai in particular. But in terms of just the flow of things and the uh, drama of the story, I was really engaged in this episode. You know, from the from the wave of dop, from the bombs to the dops to the goofs to the particle cannon. It was just like, oh, yeah, like, this is just going. Like, I was just on the roller coaster. Oh, yeah. Uh- 
Go ahead, Steven. I'll, I'll, I'll concur with PMC. I have a lot of issues with how Mariah was characterized, but oh man, I thought the action slaps. Whenever I'm taking random screenshots, like, look how good this is, it is always a Yasuhiko animated uh, episode, uh, you know, when it, when an episode where he served as animation director, and it really like it, the, some beautiful shot composition. I love whenever a battleship is in flames, like careening downward, and like the crew is like trying to like plug up the holes, but it's before a crash lands. Like, oh, good war story, as PMC said. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't mean to sound <laughs> so <laughs> like uh, I I okay. I think you're right. I think you're both right. For me, I really had, and this is why I really I wanted you guys to say it, is because I really had a hard time escaping the gravitational pull of the weird gender stuff that's going on in this episode. Like, it's just is strange. It was hard for me to let go of it, and and it's tough because I think PMC, you are correct. I think what this is meant to be is a series of circumstances which led to you know the dire straits that they're in. And it's not necessarily meant to be a comment about, and therefore women be shopping, right? That's not, I, I'm not necessarily painting that kind of direct or myopic of a picture of it, but it's hard for me to, to like, uh, so in the process of this episode, uh, uh, one of the, the big runners of it is that the, the people in charge are, are clueless about the, the circumstances that the people on the ground are in, right? And and if you follow that that idea a little bit further, what that's what that is is that Mirai, who, who is n- not as uh, experienced as a commander, is is making calls that she feels like are the best, but aren't necessarily taking into account all the details. Right? That's that's the situation as we understand it. And if we take that a little bit further, you know, the what the other beats of action of the episode are. It, it just ends up with a weird overall picture. Specifically, you know, and I talked about this earlier in the pod, I kind of buried, you know, I kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit. Uh, I think this is a really weird episode to include the, not only the the uh, the shower scene with uh, Frau Bao and the kids, but at the same episode, the, the Mirai stuff. And also, okay, this is going to feel like a random thing to connect to the, the, these two ideas, but later in this episode, there is the most bizarre sequence of events in a Gundam action scene I think I've ever seen. Um, in in a from a tone point of view, mm-hmm. they've never really done this from a tone point of view before. Um, and and like, let me be clear, it's very good, and I like it a lot when it happens. I think PMC knows what I'm talking I think about. I know what but, it is. I think I know what but it it's is. So bizarre, but yeah, I it's hard for me. So like, I don't know. The shower scene is is pointless. It really doesn't have anything to do with anything. Um, but I kind of the, one of the things that I I was kind of sh- like I don't want to say struck with it was like I think it's supposed to be domesticity, yes. rather than fan service. I think right? that's right. I think it's supposed like despite the weirdness of it all and the the fact that it's definitely meant to be sexual in in whatever weird fucking way that decided it was supposed to be because the the conversation that they have is a sexual one. Um, even if it's not like a sexy one, they're talking about you know the 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 differences between the different sorts of people in the shower, and like it's it's meant to be precocious, right? This is meant to be the sort of like innocent quote unquote sort of conversation that that people just have, and it's not really like leering, right? Like it's not the framing of it is not like a 
a, a, a the sort of thing like where the audience is getting a, a you know a, getting a peek at Frau Bao of all people. Although I thought it was weird because it's it, this is the second or really it's the third shower scene. Well, fourth shower scene <laughs> that we've had in Mobile Suit Gundam. Uh, and like Frau Bao is the only person who has thus far been anatomically correct, which I thought was weird. Like I, I, I you know, again, I don't think this is like a leering scene. But when you take this scene and the sort of maternal energy that it has, and and you take it as a piece with the rest of the episode, because otherwise it doesn't have a point. It has no purpose, right? Like, it is kind of establishing, you know, in a Steven Hero kind of way, the the sort of doldrums is the word that you might deploy of, of day-to-day life on, on the white base. But, like... In in an otherwise uh, an episode that is about something, right? Like the there is a a thing that there or conclusion that the episode is moving towards. And one of the pieces of that is you know Mirai and and her lack of experience on on the bridge as a commander, and it seems weird to me to have this weird you know diversion. Otherwise, I don't know. You, you guys are my co-hosts. I am I am open to you guys being like I want to whatever you're talking about. Whenever the dub diverges wildly from the sub, I, I feel like it's. I, I want to bring it up when it's entertaining or enjoyable for There's people. There's no way to the dub about. dubbed this thing. There's no way the dub to talk about this. There's no way. What did they <laughs> so, do? Please tell me what they did. <laughs> and so that part where um, one of the boys is like, you know, just wiping uh, Kika. Yeah, Kika. How come Kika doesn't have boobs? How come Kika doesn't have boobs? Uh, the lines are uh, poor Kika fell on the dirty floor, gotta wash her again. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. Fair you know enough, what? right? Good on them. Because this scene is is weird and pointless. Yeah. How right? else would you would you handle that? No. This is this is my thing. Is that like otherwise it is like uh, on one hand it would be a fan service scene, which by the way I still think it is. Like uh, you know, as much as I yeah, do, especially with the joke there. The, I mean, uh, first off, number one, I, you know, I, I've worked uh, like around elementary school age kids. Like saying stuff like this isn't entirely uncommon but coupled with the framing i just would have like axed the joke I, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way oh no i mean listen kids kids go too far this is a thing that kids do that's not this, like i said I, this is meant to be precocious and i do think if you asked these 1979 old men who were making this show i think they would tell you that it isn't meant to be you know a sexy scene i do think this is you know in the same sort of way that you leave, I don't know, the first Terminator movie on as as a you know a child because you know there are boobs in it. I I think the the same kind of logic is being deployed here, but I don't know. I don't actually know what the like politics around nudity in a show like this really would be at that time, and I won't really claim knowledge to that. I just know that right now the whole thing is weird, and especially taken of a piece with this episode. Listen, we're three you know dudes on this podcast and so you know for for me to just be like uh uh putting my read out there that's all i can really do <laughs> you know uh, and for me this this whole thing with the the frau bow in the shower just is otherwise pointless and if taken with the rest of the episode is like alarming <laughs> in my opinion you know, I, I wanted to follow up on the the Mirai thing because I think the the read that I've settled on is is um maybe maybe uh similar in terms of tone of being disappointed but 
the thing that I was taking away wasn't so much that it was emphasizing Mariah's inexperience as much as her performance was impaired because she was stressed about Bright, which is like a different sort of gender That's essentialist. Not better, no. And yeah it's, yeah, it's not better. It's but but I, I just was I was I was I was I wanted to check in because I know this is going to be a thing throughout the sequence. Um, and I was like, yeah, okay, Stephen, you want to run? Well, so Sailor says, so Mar- she's talking to Marker, like the scene right after. Marker says she's checking on Mr. Bright in the infirmary. And Sailor says, Sailor says a few, well, Sailor says we really need her here now. She should let Sun Malo take care of him. Sailor is um, not helpful in this episode, is what I'll say. <laughs> Sailor is not two things. very supportive of her <laughs> yeah. sisters out here. <laughs> two things. Number one, she's saying she's calling attention to the immediacy of the situation. Number one, but she's sewing on the bridge. She's literally sewing as she says this. Number two, Ah, she, the fact that she doesn't know their deepening relationship, I mean, this is, this is similar to my complaint from before, but like, this is representative of Gundam's larger issues with characterization. Like, the white base crew act more like plot delivery devices than human beings who have lived and worked in close quarters um, for, at this point, many months. Um, you know, they would develop intimate and probably antagonistic relationships with each other, but we never really see that. Like, the fact that Sayla hasn't really picked up on the fact that Mariah and Bright have gotten closer is kind of baffling to me, and uh, I'm surprised she said that. So, yeah, I, I, I talked about her. So the weird framing of her f- sewing on the uh, the bridge when she's trying to draw attention to how dire the situation is, mm-hmm. she throws Mariah under the bus, but yet it doesn't seem too dire on board. At least she's not taking it all that seriously. I don't know why she would choose to sew at this moment, which, like Ignis mentions, a little weird frame to consider, like, the maternal and, like, I don't know, women be shopping energy in this episode. And then also I point out to the fact, like, <sighs> the fact that Sayla doesn't, like, hasn't picked up on their deepening relationship yet, like, this is my issue with Gundam, Gundam's issues with characterization writ large. Like, the white-based crew, to me, act more like plot delivery devices than human beings who, you know, have lived and worked in close quarters and would probably develop either intimate relationships with each other or at least antagonistic relationships with each other, but they definitely, like, pick up on each other's shit. Like, they know exactly everyone's routine and, like, what everyone's about and who, who's hanging out with who. And, uh, like, we never really see that, not at the level that to me, feels honest. Um, but yeah, I, the, the issue could be I'm asking a little too much of this kid show that's just trying to subvert trends just a little bit at the, the, the beginning. It definitely is weird to me because I feel like we, we've, we've talked about an absence that we feel of white base relationships. And if there's a relationship that I feel like is budding and I am being sold on, it is the ongoing progress of Bright and Mariah's relationship, for better or worse. I feel like I see it. I could point to a bunch of scenes where I feel like it is a real thing. And so it is very it feels extremely pointed that Sayla, who also spends a lot of time on the bridge, is like, Why why are you so concerned? Why are you in the infirmary of Bright? Like what's going on there? Uh so Yeah, I don't know how to take it. So it's interesting. I, I'm I'm curious, and I don't know how much of this is just like I, you know, it is me, Ignis, the premise buyer, Maddox here. <laughs> um, but like, I wondered how much of this was Sayla not being aware of the like the emotional thing that's going on between Mirai and uh, Bright, and how much of it was just supposed to be like. First off, you know, there's a certain amount of 
uh, uh, physical intimacy or or the the expression of intimacy that is like kind of projected as like a different amount of appropriate in these kinds of shows. And I'm like, sometimes the, the, and we've talked about this before with different shows like, like Gunbuster and stuff like that, where there's this sort of implication that the, the acting out of the possibility space of that relationship is more enticing to an audience than, than performing it. Right. Which is like the, the, the thing that we're kind of speaking to with Bright and Mirai, which is they very much are like performing it. Right. And I'm not sure if Sayla's, treatment of mirai is meant to tell us that she is clueless about it or if she is purposefully ignoring it in the way that she's treating mirai i'm not sure if we're supposed to take one or the other right um and this is not to say that i feel like the what you guys have put out there is incorrect i'm Mm -hmm. i'm i i kind of love the point of view that you guys have brought up because it's not one that occurred to me at all like i i was kind of afraid of the kind of boring like sort of the center in between world where she is like trying to be, I don't know, weird and polite about it and ignore. I sort of like the read that she's just fucking clueless. Like she's just, (laughs) she just didn't pay attention. You know, I would love for Artesia to have that kind of flaw to her where she's just not really paying attention to the individual people's reactions to stuff. Like this would be the most obvious thing. I would love that too. So I was like, <laughs> so like, uh, when do you think uh, they started hooking up? And Sailor's like, who? And Kai's like, what do you mean? <laughs> you spend all your time working on the bridge. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you talking about? I would about? love character interaction like that. That is what I crave. Feed me. Just like characters talking like that. No, totally. I, I, and you know, like either. The, okay. I don't a PMC. I want to get your take on this mm-hmm. in specific because I feel like I'm the wrong person to ask about this. I was very annoyed that the plan here was multiple small bombs mm-hmm. on individual elements that are jetpacked onto the Brit onto the white base. And like, there's a part of me that knows that that's really that's not really fair, right? That that's. It, this is fine. This is a fine sort of setup. Did you did you have that feeling at all about the similarity to the um other episode? You know which one I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. To the to to the episode uh, what was that 14 right where they they put they got on the the hover bikes and rode around. I think mm-hmm. the there were probably two things that jumped out at me. One in terms of just like the practicality of it is, I like here's the thing about like I feel like about planes. They're actually going a lot faster than you think they are. Right. <laughs> so I'm kind of surprised. I mean, y- you can write it easily to be like, oh, well, White Base was avoiding radar, so they're staying low or something like that. Like, there is a pretty, there's probably a pretty good reason to, 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 you could justify sure. that. Sure, 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 sure. The thing that really got me, though, was um, the relationship that this episode has to, uh, to plastics really really bothers me Mm -hmm. um that they're like oh we can just do all this with plastics and we'll make us invisible to radar and to detection and that will be it's it's like um i I don't know anything like this like this kind of this is close to being the the, like the stealth war story the stealth ship the stealth boat you know whatever that, that kind of thing where you're able to sneak in it but it really it moves on beyond that pretty quickly because this is just the inciting action to get to the the shorthanded crew falling into the trap kind of plot. Um, right. But like that does, <laughs> I really do. Uh, I don't know. I wish they they didn't. I wish they just said like, oh, people are small. We can't track them on radar. 
Right. No, I agree. Did we, um, what are we, hmm, I, I got, I got this cubes for Steven. Do you still have Steven? Oh, I'm here. Okay. You're still with us. Okay. I All am right. here. All right. So I we're going to proceed. I have full, full color. All right. I see him. Full Steven treatment. That's good. That's fine. That's, uh, that's what I want. I wish I had, I wish it were you and I could see Steven right now. Um, but in, I'm going to, uh, Steven, did you have a comment on that? Uh, the thing I brought up, the fact that it is very similar to that Tamino episode. No, I mean, I couldn't shake that thought from my head either. Yeah. It's, it's a good thing to point out. I mean, you know, to, to, to PNC's point, like, that's not really the thing that gets them, right? This is a setup for them to, to put them in the position for the mega particle cannon. Um, but the thing that I, that really kind of bothered me more was like, the real issue is that there are tons of dudes. There's so many guys in this episode. Like, there's a million of the, 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 the jets. I forget what they're called. Dops. Dops. Yeah, dops. Um, and then once they actually pl- deploy the Gundam, which, you know, at first when they were deploying it, I was like, man, I, I feel like the Gundam's not going to help you with all these dops, really. Um, then there's a million goofs on the ground. Um, and this is where we get the the scene I wanted to to talk about. Yes. PMC is, yes. is raising his hands in triumph. Um, first off, I do want to shout out, um, even though it makes no sense character-wise... I really like how well Hayato and Amuro work together here. Um, yes. The the scene where um, uh, Hayato throws a rock at him, uh, a really big rock, is is a great bit of teamwork. It's a cool little dual tech where, you know, they, they distract the goofs with the boulder and the Gundam is behind it. And he uses that opportunity to make that attack. That's good. I like that, that sort of stuff. It's cute. That's good stuff. Um, and, you know, we also get like, like a... a Gag, I guess, it's, is the word I would use for it. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna attempt to defend this gag, the thing I think I need to push for is, I think it is useful in that it establishes that not every goof is piloted by by Rambaral, right? Like, yeah, just, just because you have the cool blue mobile suit with with the the whip, it doesn't mean that you whip. Right. No, I think that's fair. No, and maybe that's even a good defense. So. Amuro is fighting the the Goof Patrol, and um, you know, real quick in the dub, they literally say Goof Troop. I shit you not, <laughs> Goof Troop. It's been spoken. They had to get one. They had to get one. Good for them. Um, okay, so Goof Troop is confirmed. We've got a Goof Troop. We we got it, folks. We can all go home. Yeah, murder of crows, troop of goofs. Yes, a troop of <laughs> goofs. So, uh, the 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 uh, the Gundam is fighting and he's he cuts one of the goofs with his beam saber and then the beam saber runs out of juice uh, it, uh sure i don't know uh, um, you ever play no more heroes yeah okay sure that's a good point he, they, they need to sit down and you just, just shake, shake that we move right until yeah, it charges right. up yeah um <laughs> and so when when Amro attempts to stab the cockpit uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, it's just, he's just got the hilt of the beam saber. And so it just stabs into the cockpit and sort of extends forward into the face of the, the, the pilot. And so Amuro kind of peels it open like a sardine can, allowing the, the pilot to sort of comedy his way down and escape the goof. And like, listen, it is one little scene. We can't really spend too much time on this. And the other thing is, weirdly, it's pretty funny. <laughs> like, the little guy just scooting around. I mean, he really doesn't have a spine. He just kind of, like, worms his way down, you know? <laughs> it's, very, it's pretty funny. It's a pretty silly thing. It's just weird to put this 
here, this is a very funny scene in what is a pretty serious situation, right? Like, they are basically done for, as far as we can tell. Like, and, and, and on their way, basically head first into a trap. And I just don't really know what to make of it. I think... I think PMC, mm-hmm. your the thing that you pointed out about it, how it it shows without any sort of doubt that not everyone in a goof is as capable as Arambaral is fair. I, I think it is it, like definitely weird. <laughs> it's weird, totally. Yeah, no, like yeah, you, you could just have it be a dude who sucks at mobile suits without making him into you know a Hanna Barbera comedy man. Yeah, it just felt like the the sort of um, you know, we we talked before about visual logic, right? And about uh the, using the big O as an example. It just kind of felt like a visual logic idea that someone just wanted in the universe, right? Which is like <laughs> what it would look like for a cockpit to get hit with a deactivated weapon, right? Cuz the other thing it kind of forces you to do is realize what a beamed weapon would have done in that context, right? Like, that's the other thing it forces you to... Which is why the whole bit is weird, right? Right, because this man was this, almost hamburger. Right, exactly. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. This man was almost hamburger. So, it's it's a strange scene through and through. The, uh, the, the various goof encounters in this episode reminds me, in JRPGs, when you encounter a high-level enemy that posed a threat early in the game, but who later you wipe the floor with, like the T-Rex in Final Fantasy XII, who's just outside Rabinaster, and if you fight him early in the game, you're going to get your ass handed to you, but later on, you're just making mincemeat of those T-Rexes. Yeah, it's, it's I, I mean, it's kind of a, an interesting thing to do, right? It's interesting to put the goofs in this situation where, like, we would otherwise associate them directly with Ron Baral, and now they're they're doing their damnedest to make them basically equivalent to Zaku's, right? Yeah. It, which that, is interesting. I think we're going to soon get to the part where, where Amaro's, Amaro's abilities are unquestioned to the point of the... We're going to get, you know... The succession of Xeon mobile suits, from what I recall, is going to increase. We're going to get a lot of yeah. suits mm-hmm. coming up. And then also, oh, yeah, and that- I think it's probably next week that we're going to discuss how they have to, like upgrade Gundam because Amuro is too fast for Gundam. I think that's I think that's going to come up either next week or the week after. I mean, so, at least we'll get, you know, we'll answers get there, to yeah. my questions last week, remember? Mm-hmm. Where I was like, we need to delineate which is Amuro and which is the Gundam. It's especially funny for that to be a, a plot point coming up considering Rumbaral's salty runback la- the other week where it's like, yeah. it wasn't you, boy, it was the Gundam. And then and now in a couple weeks apparently where it's going to be like, ah, just kidding. <laughs> the Gundam's not even that good anymore. Yeah, Gundam can't keep up. You're breaking it down. That's that's the thing that's interesting. I don't know. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here because we're losing, I think, part of the thing that's interesting about this show is because of how desperately it's trying to do different stuff in this space, it's losing some of the things that make the genre interesting in the first place. I mean, this is my old thing with, with Real Robot to begin with. That I feel like the amount of work you have to do, the amount of defensiveness just in the text makes the whole thing, like, what? why even bother with the giant robot at that point? Um, but, you know, we, we the Gundam at this point is just one of the guns that they have. Like, it, it's really not, at this point anyway, after being threatened by a single Magellan top, like, it really isn't, as far as the, the, the audience is concerned, at least right this second, not too much better than the gun cannon or the gun tank, other than Amuro is in it most often. You know, am I? Do you guys think I'm being unfair? Do you think I'm I'm 
like you know trying to to uh, hold too much against the show at this point. I just I just feel like if pressed, I don't know if I could explain to you what was special about the Gundam at this point. No, I, I think that's I think that's right because I think we we have seen now that the other ones are just as armored practically. Right. Maybe the treads are weaker on the gun tank. That's about it. Uh, so I know I do think it's fair to say that if you follow the logic of what we've seen in the you know these uh, 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 the action of these episodes, then the conclusion is that it is Amuro who is special. Right. Yeah. I mean, Amuro even voices that earlier on he, when he's very suspicious of the Federation. He says that you know they're probably mass producing these things as we speak. My my Gundam is basically obsolete, or at least not as special as maybe I once thought. And if you take the greater canon into consideration, he's not wrong. One of my favorite bits that we passed over is when the men blow up their tiny bombs. Uh, uh, they, they, you know, they go to red alert or whatever. Uh, what is it? Like combat level two, I yeah. think is what they say. Um, and Amuro comes out of the Gundam and he's like, God damn it. And he just throws the, the, the wrench on the ground. I really wanted to screen cap that for some reason, just to, like to capture the energy of that. Or he's like, God damn it. It's it's really well drawn. Like mm-hmm. the, the the frustration there is is, and this is something my partner says when we were watching it. Like for some reason, it's really convincing. <laughs> like the energy is really palpable of just like the frustration of not even being able to sit and tinker. Right? Like you just want to fix the problem, and other stuff just keeps happening. You know, um, and the other stuff in this case is you know head on attacks by enormous force. So we didn't talk about this a ton because this is a smaller point in this episode, but. You know, part of the drama here is that they weren't expecting this kind of resistance, right? And the reason they're getting this kind of resistance in this area is because the Federation doesn't know that much about what Makave is doing over here. And precisely the reason why the Federation doesn't know that much about what Makave is doing over here is because it turns out he's got a mole in the Federation, right? That he's got a dude. I wanted to ask about this because I feel like I didn't. I don't. I didn't read this text point. I'm. Who is the mole? So, early in this episode, Steven, did you want to answer this? You want me to talk about it? I was between two poles on this one. There was a, they put a lot of emphasis on this scene. So, it's when Makuve um, is talking to, I don't know if he has a name. but Judok he, is his name. Judok, yeah. So, he says, Mr. Judok, go tell General Oran this. For the entire day tomorrow, he must slow down the movement of the Federation forces in Eastern Europe. And he's about to leave. And he looks at him. Makuve looks at Judok and says, fix your uniform. Your Federation collar is showing. And so I was between two poles. Is this subordinate a Federation defector? Or is like a comment saying that Makuve thinks he's too timid? But this line definitely stuck out. Like there was clear emphasis on this line. Oh, no. He's a double agent. He's okay. he's some kind of – that was how I read it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, maybe Steven – that never even occurred to me that it was well, like – Judoc checks his collar, which is – I mean, maybe it's just Judok's personality where, like, the line takes him aback and he just reacts physically to it. But if he was a Federation defector, I feel like he wouldn't go through the process of, like, checking his collar. Because it's just a figure of speech for that point. So I don't necessarily. think... See, I don't think this is a defection situation. I think this is a dude mm. who is acting in one manner while actually working for another. Right? Yeah. You know, I, this I, is... I think... I'm looking at it now, I'm, and uh, it seems like, I'm uh, looking at details that the accepted textual reading is that he is a double agent when i my my i think i had to say incorrect reading but like placing the facts as they are i thought this was another situation of makuve screwing over fellow zeon soldiers again because that's what we all we've seen makuve do is just screw over rambaral screw over dozel and i thought this general character that he was referring to 
was, uh, and he was just getting on this guy's case. Obviously, looking at it now, hearing what you guys are saying, um, Judoc is a double agent. Well, so, because, and the reason this even matters, because this is the thing I'm getting to, was, is to establish why they're having the trouble that they're having, right? And, like, this is, it's interesting that, that it didn't occur to you guys in this way, and I'm not, this, this is not the Ignis blasting mm-hmm. in, interpretation hour. As much as I, I, I guess I'm curious, did you guys feel like then the amount of resistance they were running into, like, do you feel like this is the sort of thing that Gundam can just deploy? Like, they're, they're, it doesn't need a reason for suddenly... Because, like, this was the thing that I, at first, was annoyed about, was like, so wait, the the prince, Garma, doesn't have, like, a fleet of goofs at his hand, but but Makuve does somewhere? But but with the knowledge that Makuve has literally a double agent feeding bad information to the Federation, then I go, well, okay. So that's that's what's going on there. I I can understand that th- at this point, not even Zeon knows thoroughly what Makave is going was doing, right? Like they they don't even know necessarily that he's got a, a whole setup down there. So when they got to a a plot point where it seems like, and the other thing that this brought up for me, which I thought was interesting, was the possibility that part of the reason why the Federation sucks so bad is that there are no sides anymore. That the Xeon have won so definitively that they're basically running the Federation too at this point, right? Which I thought was an interesting idea. I don't think it's that f- thorough. Mm-hmm. Judoc doesn't seem like he's like, you know, running shit as much as it's. I just liked the idea of like, oh well, no wonder this this con- this conflict is so one sided. Like the 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 Federation are thoroughly compromised. It seems like. So I guess I'm curious. Did you did you guys just feel like? You know, this is just the drama of the episode, so I don't we we don't necessarily need a reason for the forces to be this overwhelming. Yeah, or like- I mean, to me, it was just you know, M- Makuve is uh, more effective at marshaling his available resources all at once to actually you know put put the forces of the white base into a trap. Because to me, the energy of the episode was coming off of of Oregon phoning in my favorite Zian soldier. You're like, yeah, we're having more trouble than we thought. It's the white base. You know, they're just blowing up bases. And, you know, and the response to that was Makuve is like, well, I'm going to handle this personally. And Makuve, you know, to me is a, a more competent adversary than either Garma or, um, you know, or Ron Baral because he actually like holds on to his cards and plays them when he thinks it's time. Yeah. Steven, did you have a thought there? Or not really. Yeah, I agree with PMC. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. I think for me, I, uh, because of the way that, um, the, the, this idea kind of made the the situation feel more like uh thought out to me than it did before i was really latching onto this as a plot point the the idea of the federation being compromised in this way because now that suddenly that makes a whole lot of other things make sense to me like it, it suddenly becomes clear the the sort of uh, uh, it seemed like uh, a really uneven information gap between the two sides. <laughs> at least that it's like at this point in a post Garma world. Um, the the action is kind of all over the place in this episode, but I do think that the way that it all is a series of plans that eventually lead to the the mega particle cannon is is largely pretty uh, uh, effective and pleasing. Um, you know, we talked about the the I think my favorite action beat of the episode, which was the the boulder maneuver. Mm-hmm. Um, do, were there any other action beats you guys wanted to shout out? 
off the dome. The Mega Particle Cannon is very satisfying. Uh, you know the the way the beam is animated, the damage it does, the effort to uh, heal that damage. I also think the shot by Amaro with the beam rifle off mm. the side of White Base is very striking. It is a yeah, very sick. I agree. Very very cool shot as well. Uh, so yeah, no, I'm just no scope. More beam weapons, please. Just just what was out. the name of the cannon in Code Geass that they fired and they yelled the name of the cannon? It was in the hostage episode at the hotel when it was first deployed. I don't know. They reminded me just of that because they would always shout the name of the cannon before they fired it. They're very similar name, I believe. Well, if it was Mega Particle Cannon... Oh, is this the one that the Japanese forces have? Yes. Yes. Okay. I I remember what you're talking about, but I I do not... Uh, No, I don't recall. It is not not on the tip of my tongue. But I believe you. I I, I agree that it was probably similar. Uh, We we cut to Bright a couple times in the action of this episode, and Bright is uh, not doing good. He's deliriously calling for Ryu to do stuff. Uh, that's, you know, he, he, Bright's been under a lot of pressure, you know, and, and he's not getting a whole lot of support. Uh, it, you know, I've been critical of Bright. I don't think he's been doing the best of jobs, but I, I think this is understandable. You look, listen, I get migraines. I understand. Sometimes you get a migraine day, you know? Um, this is the kind of situation though, and, and this is part of the, 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 the thing I, I couldn't get behind with this episode. This is the sort of situation where, there's no right answer to any of the questions, right? Like from from step one, when the bombs go off, they're already there's no right answer anymore, right? That's kind of the point of the plan, which is the whole thing Makave is trying to explain to um, Uraganger, Uragang, yeah, uh, <laughs> is is number one, uh, which is that you know they've basically left them with one option, right? And and it's just to limp towards the mega particle cannon. Um, it's the sort of, uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's the sort of plan that, you know, to bring up, uh, Lelucha Zero, that's the sort of thing he did all the time, right? That was the whole, you know, up, up lift the, the chessboard thing he would always do with, uh, the landscape around them was put the opponent in a situation where they wouldn't have options anymore, right? This is the thing that, that they did in reverse when they were in China, when they were, uh, you know, when, what's his name? Uh, a beautiful anime girl disease guy <laughs> that that did that survived the show. Um, Zhang uh, K. Uh, Zhang K. You know, um, uh, he, this was the thing he used against them, kind of. Uh, you know, uh, the. <sighs> I guess if there was another point I wanted to make, it, it was that I feel like. You know, we talked about Sela and her lack of support for Mirai and Mirai and her ab- inability to make a right call in the entirety of the episode. Um, I, I do feel like the way that uh, say, uh, Mirai's pressure was sort of uh, focused on her relationship to Bright was really the straw that broke the camel's back for me a little tiny bit. It's just mostly, you know, I, I, it is such a weird fiction thing. Right. It, it is, it's fine for characters to, to really have relationships with one another that help define them. It's just usually only the women who have this kind of, like, you know, they draw strength from their, their, their male peer sort of thing in a way that isn't like, and you know, hey, it, I would love scenes where dude characters get to, to, to like, you know, draw strength from the love of their male friends. That's what Shonen's all about, baby. But, you know, it's it's the sort of thing that I, I wish they was a little bit more elegant when it comes to Mirai. Because listen, I like Bright and Mirai. I think that's 
I'm into that. Listen, in general, I am pro characters smooching. In general, I, I'm gonna be for that most of the time. Even if I think Mariah can do better or whatever, you know, it's it's fine. Um, it's yeah, just Job John's right there. <laughs> It's just, you know, there's other angles that this I would love to, for this character to have taken here, especially since more than some of the other characters, she's the one with, like, skill, like a skill set that was, you know, before she started working on the white base, when, whenever she was going to start driving, I don't know, space trucks or whatever she was going to do before. Heavy Metal um, Queen. That's Mariah. Fuck Yeah. Uh, yeah, I I completely like the decision to frame Mariah as incompetent here really baffled me, and I thought it was a really mean spirited choice. Like, there's a way this episode can still go down the way it does. I mean, the white base can still literally go down, but uh, yeah, Mariah could have handled it as best she could. Here, though, Mar- Mariah is like explicitly framed as like becoming overwhelmed. Right. But we've al- already seen on multiple occasions. Um, that she's a pretty she's a pretty good commander already because she, remember she takes control of the situation with Joaquin. she like basically tells him to shut up and s- sit down um, she's a skilled pilot she's good with managing people um, she's been a good counsel to bright this entire time and we know that she performs well under pressure we don't know that she's a keen tactician but those other four attributes I think make up for it so I found this exercise a little counterintuitive because like I mentioned earlier on a nuts and bolts level on a nuts and bolts narrative level the white base functions to show how this disparate group of people can survive on their own without the help of the Federation. And for that to land, we need to see them function and even thriving in the absence of Bright, who's all, who you can lump in that group of ragtag people, but he's also the closest thing we get to the voice of the Federation. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a world where the, like, I, I, the way I framed this, the way that, that Mariah can never make a right decision, there's a world where that is the, the framing. Right. Where it's less that the, the characters around her are f- fucking berating all of the decisions she makes, which is what's going on in this episode, and more that she is understanding the consequences of her decisions not being working out at all. Right. And, and there's a world where that's a little bit more elegant and it isn't quite as it doesn't feel quite as focused on her position as a woman. Right. Like and and like I think the way that they tried to elevate or not elevate the way that they tried to alleviate this was to have Sayla be the one that she's turning to. Right. But it it doesn't work. Right. It, It all it really does is it creates a scenario where she feels like she's being taken apart by the people around her when that wasn't necessary to show that she wasn't ready for this, like this kind of role or position. Right. And and to Steven's point. Based off of stuff we've seen her do in the previous episodes, I, I don't necessarily see this as a logical conclusion to all the previous things that she's done. If if previously you had told me that Mirai is going to take charge in this next episode, I would have been, hell yeah. I would have said, like, this is probably the most successful they're ever going to be, <laughs> you know? And, like, it's... So it feels... It feels like a gender thing. Even if I don't think, like... I don't know. And, and, and this is the thing. I'm lying right now because I definitely do think it's a gender thing. I think the shower scene makes it a gender thing, you know, but it, it is what it is. And 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 the other thing is I'd be curious if there are people who feel strongly that that we're we're not we're missing the mark here. I definitely want to hear people's thoughts about this at mechanicianspot at mechanicianspot.com. I also don't want to see uh, not to cut you off, Ignis. I don't want to see Bright steal the glory here. And this is coming from resident Bright Defender. Uh, I haven't praised him in a little while just because Bright really hasn't endeared himself to me in the last maybe six to eight episodes. 
Um, he's made a lot of mistakes recently, and I think he should rightly receive some judgment. And I'm not, I don't know how episode 20, I haven't seen it yet, I don't know how episode 23 is going to fall yet. Because it seems that Mirai does seem, not to jump ahead too much, but at the end of the episode, like, Mirai seems to, like, have a little bit more defiance about her. Like, she's a little more resolved, is what I'm trying to say, about her. So I'm not sure what direction they're going to go in. I worry that, like, Bright's going to swoop in and everything's going to be better. And I definitely want Bright to receive a little critical interrogation. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, at the end of the episode, she she's meant to be presenting more commanding in that last moment. I think it doesn't... I think it's a weird energy at the end there because she's almost like comatose by the end of the episode. And then she comes yeah. up and she has that more sort of commanding kind of presence. But because of the, the characterization being what it is here, you could, you wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you for thinking like, oh, she's cracking more. Like this is, she's freaking out more. But no, it is meant to be like she gives her final command before walking off the bridge. Like it's meant to be like she is, she has brought it together a little bit. In a way that, yeah, it is a little bit, you know, we're, we're a little bit adrift as to what the next step is, right? And the preview doesn't help a whole, whole ton. <laughs> because the preview is is kind of just letting us know about the, the action figures that are going to show up next week. Which, you know what, that's fine. <laughs> we've, we've been due for some action figures. We got um, some goofs are going to fly around on some goblin gliders, which I'm into. I, you know, uh, I, I forgot that the skateboards show up this early. There was like so many skateboards in Zeta. That is so much yes. of early Zeta skateboards. It's true. The skateboards are, are already here. But the skateboards so are already gonna, here. Yeah. We're going to play some Tony Hawk's Pro Skater next week. Uh, uh, we're going to be hearing that Superman song a ton. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to get, I'm pretty sure we're getting the G Fighter next week. It seems like we're getting the G five. I know there's or parts of it. There's something we're due for something. Yeah, there's something weird about this thing where I think like one version of this appears in the show and a different version appears in the movies or something. I'm weird. sure if I looked it up, I would immediately find the detail. Um, yeah, but it's like it's like it's like the Gundam Hammer. It's one of those weird things. Fuck yeah, man! I miss the Gundam. Hammer. I miss the Gundam Hammer too. I can't believe it hasn't been around. I'm so sad. Um, so that that more or less brings us to the end of of 22. Uh, you know, I, I think we, we, when we started the episode, we, we, there was, we were pretty positive on it. And I think we're, we are positive at the end of the day. I, I think we're all kind of on the same boat when it comes to the weird gender angle this episode appears to have. But the action is, is well realized. Like, I think, uh, and Steven, I think pointing the finger over at Yasuhiko is, is useful in this regard because I, I think, the logic, the visual logic at play when he appears to be in charge is usually pretty stellar. It's it's particularly I'm I'm really stuck on that scene with Hayato and Amaro and the Rock. Now we didn't talk about it because it, we we brought it up a teeny tiny bit, and also because there's just nothing to say. But like, of course, it doesn't really track from Hayato's character motivations from like even like two episodes ago. But, like, we kind of, like, is there anything really to say about that? Like, I think at this point it's clear, like, if when it comes to episode by episode, character motivations are wind. And you kind of just need to go with the flow. And I think we're all just going to be a little bit happier that way. And and you know what? If we, if it improves from here, then we'll all feel pleasantly surprised. I think that's, I think that's going to be my attitude moving forward. I don't know about you guys. I think that's exactly right. I think I just... I feel like I am I am looking for things to develop that I know are important in the long term. I Bright and Mariah, I generally said flattering things about in terms of how that's been established. 
Uh, I'm looking for you know for more of that. I, I just um, Hayato is one that I really want to see more of consistency wise, and I think he is he's the one who is the most short on that stuff, unfortunately. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are inching closer to when uh, Yasuhiko unfortunately got sick, and I, I've I've heard from Tomino himself in interviews that you could really feel it in the the visual shot composition. I think it's in that oh. in the 30s or so, or it's close. Oh, well, I feel so bad curious, for uh, commenting now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, he's making a Kukuru's Done movie. It's going to be fine. <sighs> <laughs> All right. Well, I guess on that note, then uh, PMC like just punched me in the gut and, and d- destroyed all the energy I had. But you I, know where that comment came from? Right from the Kukuru's Dome. <laughs> oh no! Well, we've got a title at least. We get. We've got to get away. Bling 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 bling. Quacks <laughs> on. Quacks on. Quacks on. All right. And on that note, I was one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox, Stephen Hero, PMC Trilogy. And you can catch us next week when we're all going to be riding in on our individual skateboards. And I'm a Superman. I should probably not, like, make a meal out of clap like that. That doesn't make it helpful, I'm sure. Anyway. Are we feasting? <clears throat> <clears throat>